Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, episode 18. I am your host, B. Chavez, and as always, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in yet again. This show is a very special and especially by request. All of you, uh, the, the feedback I got from episode 16, the anabolic androgenic steroid slash performance enhancing drug episode, was such a big hit that we got so many questions, comments, and requests for clarification that Lyle and I sat down and did an entirely additional show, and that is what you are about to hear. So, episode 18 is going to be Lyle and I in the same format, Lyle interviewing me, technically, although because this show was a bit less structured and a bit more dialogue, uh, we actually get a lot more input from Lyle, which I find interesting and exciting, uh, considering Lyle's background and his just general scientific acumen. So this is a continuation of the Anabolic Androgenic Show and kind of a sideways dialogue, uh, somewhat separate of the first show. So it, it's a little interesting on two fronts. It's definitely a mountain of material. It's just a shade over two hours of Lyle and I talking on the subject. So I suggest you put your feet up, take a moment, and uh, strap in because... There's going to be a lot of drug talk to follow. With nothing additional from me, here you are. I head you off to the host for the day, Mr. Lyle McDonald. Don't forget to sign up for the SPR and Evil Genius Sports Performance Newsletter via the Team Evil GSP website. All right, guys. So uh, welcome to this week's Evil Sports Genius Podcast. Uh, once again, I'm Lyle McDonald. For those of you who don't know me, I'm really nutrition and training guy. I know just enough about drugs to be dangerous and hopefully lead uh, a good discussion. I'm here with Broderick Chavez. Broderick, thank you for appearing on your podcast again. You know, I love being on this side of the mic. I love being on this side of the conversation. I'm uh, I'm enjoying myself, Lyle. Yeah, you know, let it rip. For those of us, you know, for those who listened to the last one, where I think he and I talked for about three hours, I actually had a blast. You know, I I, I like to think I know enough, like to be dangerous. I'm, I'm and at least. Uh, what I'm here to do is basically get the information out of him. It's, it's very difficult to do just talking at the microphone. So um, last time we kind of looked at a lot of different general topics, talked about, you know, steroids in general. Uh, Broderick made a distinction between anabolics, androgenics, and DHT compounds and how not only do they have differential effects, but uh, made the very good point that, there's no single drug stack for everybody. It is very goal-specific, and, you know, maximal mass gains for bodybuilders is very different than maximal strength gains, which can be different for, um, you know, what a performance athlete, MMA, or someone who can't gain a lot of weight is, and people fall down that, that rabbit hole. Um, so we're going to kind of follow up on that this week with more details. You know, clearly people – I saw personally a lot of questions about, you know, Stack design, which we didn't talk about, uh, post-cycle therapy, I think we're going to address again because Broderick made some good points about most of what's out there being uh, bullshit and just flat out fundamentally wrong and, you know, just some more practical application. 
I think people looking for specific stack designs may be disappointed because you just can't do it. A beginner, intermediate, advanced, ancillaries, all that really are going to be plus, plus goals, but at least to do, do some general concepts. So before we start, Broderick, you got anything to add to that? Um, I, I don't. I have a couple of uh, things that were asked of me very specifically by people that are actually important enough to me to answer specifically. Okay. So at some point, I will chime in with them with those okay. kinds of things. Um, may, actually, maybe the, the one is a great starting point. Um, a, good, a good friend of mine and a coach of many natural athletes asked me to elaborate a little bit on the, like, the family tree type con- concept that I mentioned with testosterone being the root and then DHT derivatives to the right and uh, 19 nor derivatives to the left. Um, and he, the question was, the question was, he, you know, he obviously understood that pretty directly. He said, but what are the, are there, are there commonalities within the families enough to think of them as families and somewhat associated and interchangeable? And what are the general behavioral differences if there are? So real quick, I do want to address that. First of all, the centers, that, that center of the family tree, testosterone. Testosterone, boldenone, and dianabol are the three major players in that. And because they are the original root androgen, they are by definition very general. Um, so you can think of them as kind of the broad spectrum antibiotic. They're just very general. They do a little bit of everything and they do everything pretty well. They're not targeted, they're general and nonspecific. And then when you move to the right and the left, you get measurably more specific, but at costs. Um, and I will mention this because it will carry over to the other two families. Dianabol being the only orally active compound in that list. There actually are other testosterone derivatives that are orally active, but they're not popular uh, and they're not common, so I won't really dwell on them. Um, Trinabol is actually probably the next most popular, and it's really just Dianabol with a different, uh, different, uh, um, addition to make it orally active. It's a, um, uh, is it a halogen ring? I think it's a halogen ring that makes it orally active. Yeah, I, I think it's a halogen ring instead of, uh, um, uh, the, the, uh, C17, but it's not relevant, it's just the reality that the structure is the same. Um, but reality is, because any time you make one orally active for, for reasons relatively unknown, and this follows in all three categories, the oral activation or the, the, the alterations necessary to make it orally active seem to change the characteristics slightly more toward the volumizing side. Now you get the anabolic properties, but you seem to get more water retention, more carbohydrate retention. It's clearly associated in some way with that liver metabolism, I don't think anyone is really, I don't think anyone is really knowledgeable on exactly why it happens. But for instance, if you move to the right into the DHT family, um, you take, uh, uh, you know, Primabol is a perfect example because it comes both in a injectable depot formula and it also comes very, uh, obscure and hard to find but it does come in an orally active form. You can get primobolin tablets, and it is exactly the same drug, yet in its oral version, it brings slightly more body weight, slightly more water retention, slightly more carbohydrate retention. So there's clearly something about the change that makes it, you know, liver resistant, 
that engages the liver somehow and then does some complicated biochem that brings on additional body weight. So one of the generalities I will mention is within these three families, anything orally active is going to bring slightly more water retention and body weight gain than an injectable form. So that's a generality you can kind of carry and use to your advantage or potentially to your disadvantage. And sure. then the other the other major differentiation is uh, anytime you talk about sexual dysfunction in males from anabolic steroids, you're almost always talking about a 19 door. Just okay. you know, it's just inherent in the nature. And almost any time you're talking about um, very low gains in body weight, not necessarily low gains in muscle, but low gains in body weight, you're talking about a DHT derivative. So those are the characteristics I would attribute to them. Uh, aggression seems to carry across the board pretty average and even, with the exception of uh, Trenbolone, which just brings buttloads of aggression. It's one of the reasons <laughs> that I, pers I personally just don't think it's a good drug. Um, yeah. it, it works great at building muscle and filling out a physique, but I think the time that, you know, between the really bad attitude and the floppy cock and all the other problems that come with it, I don't think it's worth fooling with. Um, I've been proven wrong a handful of times, but in general, that's my attitude on that. Um, and then one other point that I will make is people take the time to do your homework. Um, by Bill Llewellyn's, any one of his great books, you know, Anabolics, and it gives very detailed and mostly from medical literature, mostly not neuroscience, and describes these compounds in relative detail. Um, you should, uh, if you ever think you're going to take these drugs, you should own that, you should read it, you should study it, and a couple of things should jump out at you, and they're safety-based issues. And that is two drugs in specific, uh, uh, equipoise, boldenone, undecacyclinate is the, is the compound name, is notorious, as is uh, anadrol, oxymetolone, are notorious and actually clinically prescribed in their respective human medicine and veterinary medicine to elevate blood solids. They raise hemoglobin, they raise red blood cell count, they raise right. blood viscosity. Okay, that is really important, folks. If you happen to be a person that runs toward the high side of the hematocrit range and you go hammering one of these drugs, you can and very likely will get a blood clot and that can lead to all sorts of things, including death. I personally know an individual who did this to themselves. Um, you know, if you just naturally have a hematocrit of 15 and you go whacking back a thousand milligrams of boldenone, uh, you're going to be in hospital. Okay? It's just the way it works. Yeah, and it's, you know, just kind of tangentially, but to kind of just drive this point home. So, you know, I imagine listeners know about erythropoietin, EPO. It's really an endurance mm -hmm. athlete drug, although, you know, I remember, again, Dan Duchesne, whose name is going to come up endlessly. Just because <laughs> he, he was the guru. Even when he was wrong, he was brilliant. And, of course, he, mm -hmm. he was writing long before the literature, a lot of the research on this was done. So he was learning. In the, but anyway... He, he talked about EPO potentially for contest bodybuilders, just for blood volume and pumpability. But when EPO got started, it was very much abused by uh, cyclists because they they drug yep. like uh, they, they make bodybuilders look uh, kind of like dilettantes sometimes. 
and they were driving hematocrit, uh, and they realized normal hematocrit between about 42 and 44, women a little bit lower, some guys were a little bit higher, yeah. and they were driving hematocrit up into the 60s. And what yep. was happening is they would spend eight hours on the bike, and they would get very dehydrated, and their blood volume, it, your blood becomes like syrup, and it doesn't pump well. And there were six Dutch cyclists that were thought to have died from EPO abuse. It, it actually got to the point in the Peloton that guys were sleeping with heart rate alarms. because, mm-hmm. And if the heart rate alarm went up, they would do jumping jacks to increase blood flow because their, their blood was so viscous that it was not, it wasn't pumpable. And so, so and, and, you know, in bodybuilding, the, the really pre-contest is where you're going to get into that severe dehydration. And certainly, you know, most, most bodybuilders, normally your hematocrit would drop. However, if you're taking drugs and, uh, to, that are going to impact that, you may be pumpable, you may be more vascular, but that 24 hours of straight dehydration, you may be very much at risk. Um, Absolutely. and that, that is, that is really, uh, an important concern, um, on top of whatever speaking, else is going on. Speaking both tangentially and of Dan Duchesne, he was also clever enough to suggest the use of Trentol while one was doing the EPO for your contest prep, uh, because yeah. Trentol makes the blood cells more, um, flexible and a little yeah, bit more Trentol slippery. Ciclid, I think, were his two, his drug array. Um, yeah. yeah, just like in that, in that thought, not that I'm trying to give guys ideas of like how to offset the dangers, but with something as simple as a baby aspirin every morning, at least reduce and, that risk. As a matter of fact, um, I'll give away, I'll give away a big secret, uh, when I, you know, coach purely for informational purposes only, uh, people right. on the idea of using pharmacology. Um, that's actually one of my first go-to things is, sure. Um, you should uh, supplement your diet with zinc because zinc is hugely important in the binding of uh, pretty much all hormones, but particularly sex hormones. Uh, okay. You should supplement with OTC chromium colonate yep. because it is vitally important in the metabolism of carbohydrates and it's overtaxed. And lastly, everyone should, and I actually don't even go with baby aspirin. I just tell people to take uh, 325 milligram, you know, dollar store Walmart aspirin every day with their supplements. Um, it's harmless as a rule, and yeah. it can only help, uh, you know, reduce blood viscosity and yeah. improve circulation. And I think it's literally one of those simple, no-brainer, no-cost things that can uh, only help and not hurt you unless you have stomach problems, which yeah. I guess can come up. But well, I think if I'm, you're eating I'm like a true bodybuilder, yeah. It, in that we know that athletes in general, and, and I don't know if bodybuilders are better or worse about this, but back when the aspirin stuff broke, I had an uncle actually, and what he heard was aspirin is good. So he started taking three full dose aspirins a day, and yeah, you didn't have a heart attack, just had a stomach ulcer. So like, don't don't think that if 325 is good taking that six times a day is better. Take the one or, Correct. you know, uh, or take two baby aspirin twice, like whatever fits your particular neurosis. But it, right. this single aspirin, like Broderick said, is relatively harmless outside of those handful of people unless you abuse it like anything else. Um, and it's it's one of those things, will it guarantee you avoid a problem? No, but it's cheap. It's safety. It, it's like Duchesne wrote about Trentol and Ticklin. Do they, impre- do they impact performance? No. Do they impact any aspect of appearance? No. It is 
uh, insurance against having a catastrophic disaster on stage or throwing a clot or whatever it is. It, it's, there's yeah. many things like that that won't make you look any better, but let's face it, bodybuilders who are unconscious on the floor tend not to pose very well. So. Yep, they tend not to perform. Yeah, I agree. Um, so where do you want to go with this next? Do you want to touch on cycle design, as it were? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that would, and, and I would just, you know, again, for, I imagine most people listening to this did listen to the first one, but just some quick summaries of stuff you, you pointed out, which is, remember that all these drugs were originally generated for clinical use. They were meant for, yes. for medicine, uh, women in osteoporosis to, for anemia, the drugs that raise hemoglobin and hematocrit, uh, children who were testosterone, you know, that part of the reason after they discovered testosterone that they did all these derivatives, they wanted drugs that presumably had, uh, like Broderick's family tree, having effects like whether relatively more anabolic, and that just means tissue building, right? And ideally, yes. that's what you want. You want to build more muscle, bone density, growth. There's the androgenic effects. that's the masculinizing, the quote-unquote side effects. And Broderick made the point last time that men chase the side effects. Right? When you we even read about drugs, and it's like, ah, oh, you take Anadrol, you gain 20 pounds in two weeks. Well, yeah, and 18 of it is water. But guys mm-hmm. love it. They look big. They feel strong. Their friends are like, man, you're looking, you're looking big. And then you come off and you lose 90% of it. The slower anabolics don't have that, that instant effect. It doesn't, that's not instantly rewarding where you wake up and you're like, I look big. But you do it over cycle after cycle after cycle, and suddenly you're making, you know, relatively permanent gains, but it's much more long. And a lot of the drugs, um, you know, the Germans use that oral terinabol, which is one of the, the mystery drugs. And it was like, yep, didn't have huge short-term effects, but over weekly cycle after weekly cycle, it was a buildup. And, and that's part of it you, you, for some athletes. You want the bigness. You're a power lifter. You want hydrated joints. You want the body weight. And if you're a mixed martial artist or someone in a weight class, you don't want that. So, yeah, I think touching on stack design for some different goals, at least in general terms. Um, you know, sure. what, what a bodybuilder might use for maximal mass gains versus a power lifter for strength gains versus, say, a track athlete a sprinter or, you know, uh, throwers tend to be big boys by and large, shot put and, and uh, distance, of course. But, you know, some of the athletes, you know, Balco was the big thing with all the track sprinters, <laughs> and, and there were, a lot, you know, a lot of guys that needed to improve performance, but they couldn't. Carrying extra body weight hurt them more than helped them. So, Absolutely. Well, so, I, I, will tell you, I will tell you what I know on the subject, or at least what I think I know. First of all, most just bros, just gym guys, their cycle design is almost always predicated on what their buddy can get. They, yeah. they inquire, hey, what's available? And the list comes right. back. It says testosterone, dianabol, and, you know, whatever, and anabar. Sure. Well, you know, and, and so that's what they get. They get what they can have access to, and then they do the best they can with it. And I'm okay with that in that context. However, as an informed uh, you know, paid coach, this is how I would recommend you do it. You may or may not have the ability to do this, but I would assume that you own the aforementioned book and have done the aforementioned research, and you roughly know what each compound has to offer. 
And then I would say you get a plain sheet of paper and you put down your needs as an athlete. What is most important to you to elevate? These drugs are going to elevate aspects of your athletic persona. So, you, you know, if you're an, uh, a football lineman, it might simply be be bigger. You know, gain 30, 40, 50 pounds of body weight. So body weight's top of your list. And then under body weight might be, oh, okay, I, I should be stronger, commensurate with my body weight, so it's strength. And then under that might be any ability to recover from game to game. So you have a recovery necessity, although it's on a weekly basis, whereas yeah. it's not on a you know minute-to-minute basis. So you have this list now of order of importance, and then you look at the array of drugs available, and you say, all right, what drugs can give me the largest short-term sustainable gains in body weight? And that's going to be drugs with a lot of retention, like the aforementioned. That's going to be Anadrol or Dianabol, or um, if you want to move over to the 19 North side, that might be uh, Nandrolone. Drugs that come with a large component of excess baggage. Typically, you're, you're now shopping for side effects. You want the side effect of large retentions of body weight. And then you might move down the list and you say, well, I do also need some strength. So let's say we chose Anadrol. Well, that's going to give me some strength, so I really don't need to tackle that. And then under that, I need a bit of recovery. Well, a great way to just get general uh, euphoria and well-being is a little bit of testosterone. So that that drug stack for that you know NFL you know college football player kind of scenario is going to be probably 50 to 100 milligrams of anadrol a day, and you know maybe three to 500 milligrams of testosterone weekly. Testosterone is going to give them libido, well-being, generally make them feel like getting out of bed, and the anadrol is going to swell them up. That's what, so they're they're shopping for their necessity in that right. sense. Now, okay. now let's let's take that same sheet of paper, but the person writing on it is going to be. Uh, let's take something really obtuse. Let's say they're um, a gymnast. Okay? okay. So having a lean, streamlined, low body weight, high flexibility physique is absolutely paramount. But what they need is a little bit of strength and a whole bunch of recovery. They need yeah. to be able to train more hours per day, more hours per week more hours per month. So the number one aspect they're shopping for is recovery, but with a minimum of body weight and body change. They can't, because of the necessity for uh, proprioception, they can't have their body weight fluctuated. They need to know where their, they need to know where their limbs are in space at every moment, so they can't have changes. Like a little kid gets out of bed and they're a little uncoordinated, it's because literally they're not the same person that went to sleep. Um, Right. So, that scenario, now we need to look at what's going to give the maximum amount of recovery with the minimum amount of body weight. So now we're looking at something like maybe um, Drumstanolone, like something like Masteron. It's a pure, almost pure DHT. It's going to give them a high level of protein uh, you know, synthesis, but almost no water retention, almost no carbohydrate retention. So they're only going to get that anabolism and that muscular recovery. Um, that's a scenario where that person might not take any testosterone for fear of elevation of body weight. So, you, you, you know, what I'm getting at here is it should be done just like a doctor would do things. The doctor would look at you and go, I understand your ailment. What drug treats that specific ailment best? So in this case, the ailment is lack of recovery, whereas the other case, the ailment was 
lack of body mass. You know, okay. whereas, you know, now we take, you know, Joe Average bodybuilder. Now here's where it gets clever because bodybuilders could have wildly divergent needs. Like, yeah. if you're, by nature, if you're a, a thin, skinny, you know, wild McDonald-y kind of guy, you might need that size component like a football player. But now if you're more like me, that would be a little on the fat side if you did nothing. I don't need the size from drugs. What I need is that elevation of metabolism and the elevation of protein expression. So my drug regime would look entirely different than yours, even if we had the same goals. Sure. Um, and I think you know, one, and I think this is one thing that people really you know really miss is is well, a couple things. Is one you know everyone got fascinated by all the super secret European steroids because yeah. we, we all know that the Europeans have sports secrets. And what people forgot, especially in the bodybuilding realm, is they were training athletes. Now, I don't hear that as me. You know, I don't want to get into the debate over whether or not bodybuilders are athletes. They obviously train their absolute brain. Whatever. I, I, you know, I've got enough people who don't like me. But hopefully (laughs) listeners know what I mean. They're not performance athletes. I think physique sports are some of the most unique and bizarre in that what you do in, in training has almost no relationship to what you actually do in competition. I cannot think of a singular activity uh, and find someone always, well, you, you pose, okay, whatever, fine, you spend a month posing before the show. You know what I fucking mean. Like, the, yeah. the, the training you do to either get big or to diet down, all you're doing is standing on stage showing off. That So anyway, but the athletes they were training, the Germans were using, again, the aforementioned World Tournament Ball for most of their, you know, they focused on swimming, track and field. They focused actually on sports that were, A, easily controllable, which is who went the fastest, the furthest, the strongest, and they could win the most medals in, which is why they focused on that very narrow set of sports. They were not looking for maximum muscular gains. They didn't give a shit what the athlete looked like outside of the optimal physique for the sport. So they were using an approach. They also wanted to be able to pass drug tests, which is another big issue. You know, I think we talked about last time, and this is something that people really don't realize, all the periodization schemes, the three-week on, one-week off, the the high-volume build-up phase, they were building around the drug use because what they had to do, they used a lot of drugs in the off-season, and then they had to taper down to stuff that would get out of their system more quickly, and they went to more intensity and lower volume so they could recover. But that, even the three-week on, the Germans used three weeks of oil turn ball on and then one week off. And it was an odd drug that you almost got a, a testosterone rebound. But since they weren't Correct. using long-acting drugs that stayed in the system, it made it much easier to pass the drug test. And, yep. and bodybuilders have done their own version of that, but it was appearance-based. It was heavy androgens in the off-season because you got to be – a, a big fat watery dude, and then you need and and, and I think we did, talked about this and maybe can touch on it again. And then the then they switch to the lower androgens, the more anabolics to drop the water. And in in a way, you make the point that that's actually probably backwards because you, I, what you I want very much think so. What you want in the off season is to build up good lean muscle mass. Ten times ten times the water outside of making your joints happy. It makes you look bigger. It doesn't make you look better unless you think looking like a beach narwhal is a good look. You need to have the androgens when you're dieting to protect that muscle mass. And as Duchesne, so I think he wrote in Body Opus, he goes, you know, 
or somewhere, there's a logic to maintaining heavy androgens up until the very end because it keeps your joints happy under while you're overtraining. And he's like, looks only, bodybuilders get so crazy about water retention. Dude, you're three months out. Why do you care? You you have to care three days out, especially if you've got access to diuretics. Worry about dropping the water, you know, drop the heavy androgens, the, the injectable, two weeks out to drop the water. Uh, so, so I think that was a, uh, but it, 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 I'm just trying to point out the difference between what the Eastern Europeans, they were training performance athletes. Bodybuilders Absolutely. are not performance athletes. They are appearance athletes, and they are really unique in that regard. Even powerlifters, they may have to make a weight class. So there's another issue. If they're holding 10 pounds of water from Anadrol, they may have a problem making their weight class without having to do heroic dehydration, uh, which is certainly going on these days, and then heroic IV fluids to drop 20 pounds either way. Um, so, so these are concerns that I think people just think in terms of get big, get big, get and for a, even even for the bro bodybuilder, you mentioned this, that's different than a pro-level competition bodybuilder. The average bro, he may want to be bigger, but he wants to be buff to get girls. Let's just you know, yep. call a spade a spade. This is the prime, not that most women give a shit, but he's mainly impressing his gym buddies. Regardless, he doesn't necessarily want to be a walking man mountain. He wants to be 185, lean with abs. That could very well necessitate, and he doesn't want to go through off-season bulking and then looking good for a few months, a year, or one day a year, whatever. Um you know, again, bodybuilders have, again, the, that weirdness of very distinct training phases in the sense of muscle gain is the primary goal, and then they have to die. Yes, fine, lean bulking, all the I gain weight while I'm dieting nonsense that we used to hear about. But it's like there are these distinct phases. So bodybuilders might even have two distinctly different optimal drug stacks. Not to mention the areas, the clen, the thyroid, the GH, everything that else that comes in during the dieting phase. So um, I, I suspect your listeners are more on the bodybuilding end of things. Um, is it, I could be wrong about that. Is it worth dressing maybe, you know, beginner, intermediate, advanced stacks for bodybuilding? Or is it really just as simple as, you know, anchor with a heavy androgen, add an anabolic, maybe add a DHT? God be with you, like, with that kind of the summary. That, that really is largely the summary. Um, I will, I will chime in with this. I think that, um, and I, and I, and I appreciate the man's contribution more than almost any, uh, in that Dan Duchesne, I think, erred a little bit in so heavily promoting the use of testosterone. He had a lot of reasons for that, uh, some of them even included commercialism. He was responsible for, for, for a large volume of the testosterone being sold. So Fair it enough. was in his best interest to get people to buy it. And, and, and he wasn't wrong. It works really well and it's very foolproof. And there's a lot of reasons why you might choose testosterone. However, I really believe particularly American bodybuilders have an unnatural and unreasonable love affair with testosterone. I think okay. on a milligram to milligram basis, most people would be better minimizing their testosterone use. Yes, you okay. want some because you want that aforementioned, you know, you want libido, you want to feel good, you want to feel, quote, manly. 
Um, because remember, any drug you take is going to downregulate your production of endogenous testosterone. So, you know, if you're unhappy with the amount you have now and then you take drugs, it's going to make you produce even less, there's a problem there. So obviously you want to supplement, replace slash supplement your testosterone in its raw form. However, I think beyond that, there's really less efficacy in just pushing testosterone up into the, you know, 8, 9, you know, 1,000, 1,200 milligram range where you could use some of these other more targeted, clever, potentially safer drugs and get the same or better benefits with less negative health impacts and less negative physique impacts, like you mentioned about just being the big swollen watery mess. Um, let me let me just go back and reinforce you know, my attitude on this. Um, like you said, a lot of people want to use these really big androgens in the off-season. They want to use Anadrol and Dianabol. And these drugs bring size, volume. So yeah. you're in a scenario where you have a lot of food, a lot of rest, well-structured, you know, training. Everything's good. Everything's in the positive. And then you're going to pile all this additional volume and size on top of it and then take that volume and size away as your food diminishes, as your recovery diminishes, as your training volume accelerates, it seems very backward to me. What I would think is in the off-season, take advantage of all that food and all of that rest and all of that other stuff to kind of be your bedrock for size and volume. Take high-quality anabolics that will simply make you grow faster Almost like if you could think of it, even though you're taking drugs, you could think of it as kind of a, an accelerated natural state. Yeah. And then as the contest approaches and you start losing rest, start losing food, start approaching overtraining, now bring in drugs to fill the gap like Dianabol, like Anadrol, like Nandrone. And so your body weight might actually stay relatively stable even though you've, quote, dieted it away, 20 pounds of body fat you might actually end up at the contest only a few pounds lighter, obviously because you're bloated up from drugs, but at the end of the day, now you've got actually something much more similar to something you'll hear me say thousands of times, homeostasis. You've got a relatively homeostatic body weight, but you've recompositioned it all, lost fat, gained something else. Most of that something else is at least within your muscle mass, so now you have the appearance of big, lean muscles. That kind of sounds like the definition of bodybuilding to me. Sure. And, and, you know, and just, again, to keep harping on this, guys don't like the pure anabolics because you don't gain 10 pounds in a week. It's, it's, exactly. It's the, cre- it's the creatine effect. The people yeah. have been looking for a replacement. Creatine was great because in a week you gained 5 pounds. Yeah, it was all water, but whatever. People, guys who want to get bigger, they love seeing the scale go up in the same way that women love seeing the scale go down. It's just the nature yep. of, of nature of the beast. But, you know, you, 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 I have to wonder, and, and I think we will touch on the whole post-cycle therapy and <laughs> what's right and what's wrong and if it's even achievable, but it's like, you know, what did you used to hear? Oh, man, I gained 30 pounds in the off-season, but lost all this muscle dieting down. Well, no, you dropped 15 pounds of water or more, depending on, you know, what you were using. I mean, even – I still remember Dan talking about 
even in, in drug fueled bodybuilding or drug using bodybuilding, but all these guys losing muscle during their diet. I'm like, yep. you know what? To tell you? Drugs, we know if th- th- this should be preventing the problem. It's like something is not right here. Something is, is something is fundamentally wrong either with the diet or the training or, you know, whatever it is. And, and, you know, could it have been that the, the drug use was reversed? Could it, you know, again, you're, you're basically removing the androgenic compounds, some very potent recovery muscle building pro, 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 product when you must need them. And that's completely backwards. I agree. Um, you know, in the same and, way. And you know, I, you, I, let me reinforce what you just said. Folks, if you didn't hear that, I can't hear this is coming from, this just came out of the mouth of probably one of the least drug guys out there. And what he said, I absolutely can't begin to tell you how accurate it is. There should be no such thing as muscular catabolism as you approach a bodybuilding show. In the presence of, you know, gram-sized doses of high-quality anabolics, if you're losing muscle, something is fucking wrong with you. It should yeah. never happen. It should never happen. So I agree with that 1,000 million percent. There's just, yes, if you're losing muscle mass on, on the contest diet, either you're taking fake drugs or you're just training like an idiot because it should never yeah. happen. Yeah, or, or again, it could, you know, and it's, it's interesting, you know, again, most, most people know I, I come from, you know, diet and training and nutrition were always, you know, that was always kind of my focus, but I know just enough sure. about drugs. But I saw the same thing. I just kept seeing, and there was this premise that came out of drug fuel bodybuilding, which was we're going to increase volume and frequency during a diet, which can mm-hmm. work if you have anabolics, but is exactly the opposite of what a natural should do. And I was basically doing okay. what, you know, essentially what the, the a lot of the coaches were doing. It's like, no, you do high volume when you have the food to support it. If you want to maintain the reduced volume, because recovery is down, especially as a natural, and, it, and maintain intensity, and everybody had it backwards. They were working harder and reasonably in the off-season, and then they were training like morons for their diet. And it's like, no, you should reverse this and keep, you know, I, I always, you know, you need enough protein, especially when you get leaner. And, you know, I've gotten folks to very much near content, and they're just not losing a lot of muscle because they're listening. They're adjusting the the training and the diet in a much more logical way. And I suspect with drugs that could be very similar. But I also wonder how much of the quote-unquote muscle loss was losing the volumizing effect, was losing glycogen, was losing intermuscular triglycerides, exactly. was losing those effects that, again, those quote-unquote side effect drugs are, are causing. So use them use them during your diet and then drop them two weeks out. Bodybuilding doesn't drug test, so you don't have to worry about injectables and whatever. If they do drug tests, they can pick that shit up nine months later, so... Whatever. Quite honestly, in a, in a scenario where you're, you're comfortable using drugs and you're comfortable using fast-acting diuretics, you probably don't even need to attenuate your drug use, your anabolic use. You can literally take them until the day of the show. Um, you know, I've, I've personally witnessed, you know, bodybuilders, you know, shit, knocking back, you know, Anadrol like Tic Tacs on the morning of the contest. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've seen mean, that with my own eyes. You know, tying in with the whole anemia, hematocrit, you don't end up anemic. You don't end up with too little blood volume to get a good pump 
to maintain exactly. fullness. You're doing all the stuff at the end to try to compensate for that. Um, so, yeah, it, it would – I think it's interesting. It goes so against what everybody thinks. But, again, I mean, I've heard of natural – they're like, yeah, 12 weeks out, started taking my, my taraxacone, my dandelion. I'm like, really? But you're starting your diuretics now. Okay. Yeah. That, that makes sense because they want to look good now. It's like nobody gives a shit right. how you look good now. <laughs> yeah. you got to look good for what for 12 hours. Worry about it then. That's it. Uh-huh. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Trust the process. You know, yeah. worry about what you look like on the day of the contest and not the week or the month of the contest. Um, yeah. So kind of uh, extending from that, I think yeah. the, the next topic might be, um, there's something I want to come back to. Uh, we can talk about estrogen and progesterone later. But the, the yes. whole idea of cycling your drugs, right? Again, I get bored. I go back and look at the World Anabolic Review, Bill Phillips' old, you know, anabolic. And these were late 90s books, which yes. they knew what they knew, and that's what they knew. And there was always this this idea of, ah, we're going to use one drug for six weeks, and then we're going to overlap it and bring a second drug in, and you saw red stuff about, ah, we want to, whatever, clear out the androgen receptor or <laughs> saturate it. Well, is this a different drug, you know, is, is going to somehow magically have this effect when they're all structurally very, very similar? Um, it's like thinking that you can switch out codeine for Vicodin. It's like, oh, now it's a new drug. Like, no, it's not. Um, is any of that stuff still relevant? Does it matter? Yeah. Or is it just a function of, Take what you can take for 12 weeks and then switch to give your body physically or whatever, you know, blasting proof. And, again, this is assuming, assuming you have access to every drug you could ever want, which is no longer the case in the modern world. This was back in the days when right. you could obtain 10 different compounds that were all within the same different families. Assuming yeah. you can do um, that, does it matter? Well, yeah, let me, let me, let me... See, you're, you're asking a re- two really tough questions. Uh, let, let me tackle them independently. One is the obvious answer. The less drugs you take and the less often you take them, theoretically, the healthier you are. So sure. there's that. I feel obligated to just say that out loud as stupid as it sounds. The longer you are on drugs, the higher the likelihood of causing yourself harm. So this idea of, oh, is cycling your drugs on and off necessary? Necessary is a terrible word. Is it beneficial to your health? Possibly. However, there are scenarios where it's possibly not. I'll get to that. But in general, let's be honest, the less pot you smoke, the less alcohol you drink, the better off you are in a general sense. So, yes, drugs fall into that category. The less you use the better your overall systemic health will likely be. Now, that has nothing to do with your physique or your performance, so that's probably off the table as a rule, but I feel compelled to say it. Now, what, what, what this really comes down to is something you kind of almost asked and kind of alluded to is that whole receptor thing. There's a belief that long-term drug use leads to less effective drug use. There's, you know, people word it with receptor down regulation and all these strange things. So the general underlying belief is the longer you take drugs, specifically any one drug, the less effective it becomes. Here's the thing. That's actually true, 
but not in any way or for any reason that people believe. Right. Here's the gig. Okay. Receptors, androgen receptors. First of all, let's tackle this because it's important. I, I'm going to say something that's actually technically wrong, but it's generally right. You only have one kind. You have androgen receptors. It has actually officially been elucidated that there might be as many as six different kinds, subtypes with very, very minor differences. But the reality is it's one family, and they're all almost identical. You have androgen receptors. And when testosterone, anadrol, dianabol, fucking primavol, whatever you have, it all goes to the same, that key goes to the same lock every time. It's not this idea that, you know, you have different receptors for different drugs or any of that strange shit. They all go to the same one. So the idea that if your receptor's clogged from dianabol, you can now take primavol and it'll work great, that's stupid. It's going to the same place. And if a log jam was the problem, when the drug got there, it would find the same fucking log jam. So yeah. that's that's silly. Now, here's the thing that people don't know is, or if they don't know, they've never taken the time to intellectualize. Think of your bicep as a roast laying on the table. It's just it's a roast. It's a hunk of meat. That's a that's a very good direct analogy to a, a muscle. It's, that's what fucking meat is. It's a muscle. So yeah. here you have this muscle, and if you look at the surface. You're looking at the surface of muscle tissue. And on that surface is a structure. Okay? There's strands of fiber this way, and there's some connective tissue, and there's some vascular tissue. Okay. Now, inherent in that structure is androgen receptors. So, if you get a little roast, you have a little number of androgen receptors. If you get a big roast, Strangely, you're going to have a larger number of androgen receptors. So my point is, the very nature of anabolic steroids is they build more muscle. Well, inherently with the more muscle comes more receptivity. So if you think of it in this sense, if a 1,000 milligrams a week gave you a given saturation, you're filling, whatever, 1% of the androgen receptors, and now you add muscle, you're no longer at that 1% saturation. Your saturation has actually gone down even though you're taking the same dose. You're getting less saturation or a little bit less drug per muscle because there's more muscle. So in a sense, the longer you take the drug, the less well it works simply because it's fucking working. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a hilarious way of putting it. Because um, I, I even remember this was. I'm going to say the 2000s. I think it was Brian Haycock that first found some of this research that, and again, there's this idea, because many receptors do downregulate, right? If you hammer the beta receptors, they do tend to. And it was just kind of assumed, based on observational whatever, that, ah, you you stop growing as quickly. Well, like you said, it's you've got more muscle, the same drug or the same training model, whatever it is, and you always will slow down as you reach higher and higher levels. And he, he found research that, no, actually, androgen testosterone exposure uh, increases the number of androgen receptors, which went completely exactly. against the common knowledge. Um, but I guess the, the, basically what you're saying, and again, Duchesne, and towards the end of his career, even said this, because we've tried every cycling design, every stack design, and I remember they were hilarious. It was like, here's an ascending diamond, here's a descending diamond, start with the highest, start high and go low, and start low and taper up, and taper up and taper down. And he just said, it all comes down to overdosing, because at the end of the day, just take more. 
which I realize yep. isn't what people, you know, it's, it's certainly not the most technical answer because people want it to be very complicated, but it's like to keep getting bigger, you must either take more in, a, in an absolute dosage or, of course, at the highest echelons we now have, all the ancillary, insulin, GH, peptides, right. well, not peptides, you know, uh, prostaglandins got popular for a while, but they hurt too much. And, and there's all this, you know, that that's a big part of what's going on there. But it's just like all you basically escalating doses, um, that, that's what has to happen. And that's kind of what it comes yep. down to. Because people are think- trying to, to achieve these weirdnesses of either altering which, you know, thinking different, I remember, the type 1, type 2 androgen receptor theory that floated around for a while. Um, yep. Or, or try hoping that by tapering up and tapering down, they could not impact on the uh, the hormonal axis or get recovery. And that's the PCT thing, the post-cycle therapy that was also the, the, the staggering issue. And basically, it didn't seem to work. It, it kept yeah. bodybuilders well, busy drawing up cycles, but that's about it. Well, I'm gonna. I want to tackle two. Actually, I want to. I want to say something in isolation. Then I want to tackle that very thing you talked about. You know, talking about you know the, the addition of ancillary drugs and the changes in physiques. Um, Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger was very forward in uh, admitting his drug use, and he even published his quote cycle. And it was basically 100 milligrams of Dianabol a day, and 1,000 milligrams of Primobolin a week, which strangely comes out to about two grams. Okay, he took about two grams a year. It's pretty straightforward. Good choices, really well. The way he designed it, it was good. Um, it was yeah. almost exclusively ascending. It went from a low dose to a high. No okay. taper back down. It was just that. Um, yeah. And now, interestingly, Dorian Yates also was very open and published his cycle. And he only took slightly more. He took about two and a half, occasionally three grams of androgens. Okay. So... There's like a 60-pound difference in their body weight. It's almost yeah. exclusively the result of ancillary drugs, insulin growth hormone, that sort of thing. Yeah. They took approximately the same amount of, quote, steroids. So my point in this is the technology of actual steroids is almost identical from the 1960s to today. It's the same basic drugs. The same sure. Humans have the same basic tolerance to them. You know, yeah. these people that claim they're taking, you know, nine grams of steroids, I, I don't think, I think they would be in a box if they did that. I don't think the human liver and pancreas could tolerate that much. I think if Arnold could have taken more, he would have. I think he quickly and very cleverly learned, uh, that's about as much that fucking Diana you can swallow in a day without having problems. So, I just want to mention that, that, you know, really the major changes in uh, you know, bodybuilding and sports at large has been an escalation in the periphery and not the core, you know, steroids yeah. make you bigger. Um, now, what, talking about that cycle design, I want to dispel two really big myths that still are pervasive. As you've mentioned, the whole, you know, diamonds and staggering and all that stuff has pretty much gone away. But there's two things that still persist and they're stupid if you think about them logically. They're just, and when I say stupid, I mean it. They're just, they're fucking childlike when you think about it. One is this idea, and it even now has a name, of front-loading. There are people out there that will say, okay, I'm going to take, you know, 800 milligrams of testosterone a week. That's going to be my cycle. Okay, fine. But I'm going to take twice that the first week 
so that I really, I front load, I really get my levels up fast. Well, fuck me if that's not the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. First of all, first of all, there's two reasons why that's stupid. One, whether you take one milligram or one million milligrams, the drug is designed in such a way that it seeps or leaches into your system at a given rate. It's not dose-dependent. It's fucking time-dependent. So this idea that if you take twice as much the first week, it's still going to accumulate at exactly the same speed, whether you okay. took half as much, twice as much, or ten times as much. It's time-dependent, asshole, not dose-dependent. All right, so just, just so I think everybody's – so what you're saying is, like, whether you take – a hundred thousand a week. The difference will be not in how quickly it hits the peak, but at the peak that it hits. If that makes any sense. That's exactly the, that's exactly the case. So, so it, this it, whole I, idea of front loading is asinine. Right. I, I guess the analogy, because again, there's something about car analogies in, in this industry that that you know, <laughs> so it, basically it's like let let's say two cars. Uh, no, actually, that analogy won't work because it's backwards. What people want is, let's say, two cars have 60 miles an hour speed. They're trying to get a faster acceleration, or 60 miles an hour top speed, whatever it is. They want right. a faster acceleration by front loading. What you're saying is the difference is the acceleration will be identical. The front loading will eventually hit 120 miles an hour. The, the peak will be Correct. higher, but the acceleration profile and, and right. of course, that's that's the whole side chain thing, right? For right. you know, without Correct. getting deep down this rabbit hole, you know, testosterone, a not or not orally effective in its base form. Um, there is a, I believe, there's a water-based form that's very short-acting. But then, yeah, when they started tacking on the, you know, propionate, enanthate, undecanoate, all that stuff, all that organic chemistry crap that I was bad at. What that was doing that's, was determining that's what I was good. the, the <laughs> what was determining the rate of seepage, I guess for lack of a better word, and yeah. also the rate of metabolism because it, it correct and, and so that's what's real. Okay, so that's first dumb ideas front loading. Good call. Okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna amend that dumb idea with a dumb solution and then explain why that's stupid. Okay, okay. If you actually wanted that effect, where you wanted the level to achieve its peak plasma concentration at its absolute most rapid, you would do exactly what you said. You would start with testosterone suspension, which has literally an onset of a few hours. So you would start with that. Then you would follow that up with testosterone propane, which has an onset of a day or two. So now, you you know, you shoot right up in a couple of hours, and you could keep it there for a couple of days, and then you would take your, you know, your depot, your cipionator and anthate, and that would keep the levels up for about a week, and then you would repeat. So now you've actually achieved your goal. You've gotten okay. levels up basically the day you started. They're up, and then you run with it. Now, I'm going to explain why that's a fucking stupid idea. Okay. If you are actually clear of drugs, the initiation of your cycle, you're, there's no drugs in your system. Okay. So you have a baseline testosterone. Whether that's depressed for previous use, or it's young and healthy and it's whatever. The bottom line is you have a given testosterone level. Okay. If you were to take one fucking milligram, guess what? You raise your testosterone by one milligram. So okay. if you have a baseline testosterone of, say, 500, which is very middle of the road, 500 nanograms per deciliter, that's very yep. middle of the road, and pretty much everybody listening to this probably right in there. And you take yep. a 200 milligram shot. 
typically you get about four times, three to four times in nanograms per deciliter the milligrams taken. So you take okay. 200 milligrams. You're now added 800 nanograms per deciliter to your already 500. Okay. So you you have literally just tripled your circulating testosterone with a mere 200 milligram dose. The thing is, as you know, and probably some of the listeners don't know, is it works very much like that analogy of pushing the button for the elevator. Once you have more than whatever given baseline amount, that's more. More just initiated. You just push the button for the elevator simply by having more. It's not because okay. you have ten times more. It's because you have one more. One and one million are are equal at least in that very initial state. So okay. by jumping up to this 800, you know, whatever, by front-loading, basically all you're doing is exposing yourself to more drugs for exactly no additional benefit right then. So the, the, the goal for a well-designed drug cycle is to actually take the least amount you need to achieve more than you had yesterday. Okay. So the idea of front-loading is not only stupid, but it, it's actually the antithesis of what you're trying to do. Because if you really jump up to the peak plasma concentration at day one, well, now where are you going from there? You gonna, you're just going to escalate forever? That seems pretty well, impractical. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> more is better. I mean, that's what more means. Um, so right. it, 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 yeah. Very, very much nicer of you. You just took the words right out of his dead voice. Well, it's actually an old quote from the TV show Dinosaurs, of all things, but no matter. Um, so maybe tangential, maybe maybe unrelated. How does that apply to something like a Susteron or Omnidren, which is a blend of a short, medium, long, insanely, isn't that essentially trying to achieve the same thing, or is there well, a that's, not it, as a as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, that is exactly why they developed those drugs. However, this is where clinical medicine fails athletes because the purpose of clinical medicine is often something other than athletic sure. performance. Keep well, in mind the original the original Organon brand Susteron two fifty. The purpose of that drug was to be a one-time administration post-surgery. And the idea was, we want, you know, we're going to perform surgery on you. We're going to sew up your leg or whatever. We want that to heal. So we're going to give you this shot right here in this surgery room, right after the surgery, you know, after to prevent blood clots, not before. And what we want is a rapid elevation of your energy level, a relatively flat peak, and then a relatively quick cessation. So the idea was it was a one-time, one-month, single application. And if you look at its profile in that context, it's a magnificent drug. It does exactly what it's supposed to. But once you start taking it on a weekly basis, that goes out the window. It's completely overwashed by volume. So again, it's a matter of you people out there, you listeners, you need to understand... Two things. One, what the fuck the drug was intended to do. Because, right. strangely, that's what it's going to do. Okay? And secondly, you need to get this idea out of your head that clinical medicine has nothing to offer you. Oh, well, I'm not sick. I'm an athlete, so none of that shit matters to me. Yes, it fucking does, folks. 
Chemistry is chemistry. I don't care what you're applying it to. Chemistry is chemistry. And the guys who designed those drugs, those, those, uh, you know, analytical chemists and, and, and organic chemists that fucking designed those drugs, they're way smarter than your gin buddy who's telling you what the fuck's going on. So settle down with that, okay? Now, the, the, the whole idea of front loading is stupid. An equally or possibly even stupider idea is this idea of reduce, diminishing the dosage as you attenuate a drug cycle. Right. Um, he, he, I remember Dan Duchesne, actually, who originally was a fan of that, and he quickly left it because he quickly saw the light. Um, I remember him saying this, and it stuck with me as pretty much my one and sole argument against tapering the dosage. If you, if you determine that 1,000 milligrams is the dosage necessary to grow, every dosage less than that, by definition, is fucking useless. Yeah. But I don't think you really even need to talk about it any further than that. If 1,000 milligrams will make you grow, why the fuck would you take 800? Why would you take 600 or 400 or 200? You're just exposing yourself to drugs longer for no good goddamn reason. Well, but wasn't wasn't the hopes of that, and I think this leads into the next topic, wasn't the hope <laughs> was that, ah, by tapering it, you know where I'm going with this, that by tapering it down, you could give the body a chance to, you know, restart the, uh, you know, yes. the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, so that hopefully when you came off, your testosterone wouldn't be hypogonadal and tanked. Yes. I said, wasn't the idea, we've seen it with thyroid, we've seen it with Clem, like, ah, let's, Let's taper up to 100, and if we bring it back down gradually, maybe we won't have to spend eight weeks feeling like shit. Wasn't that kind right. of the idea? That, that was the idea, and the reality is whoever thought up that idea didn't know anything about endocrinology. <laughs> because here's how, it, here's how it works. I can, I can sum this up really quick for you. And I know you know this. I'm not talking to you, Lyle. Sure. I know that you're, you're fucking yeah, right. brighter than the average bear. But here's the game, folks. Okay, your body has a, quote, programmed ideal testosterone level. Let's go back to the aforementioned 500 nanograms per deciliter. That's what your body expects to see. So you take a bunch of whatever, I don't care what the compound is, and your body interprets it as a testosterone level of 2,000. So it checks, do we have, and it doesn't check, this is the key, it doesn't check how much you have. It only checks, is there 500? Well, yes, there fucking is. So every day it says, is there 500? Yes, there is. Don't make any. Is there 500? Yes, there is. Don't make any. So your dosage goes from 2,000 to 18. It says, is there 500? Don't make any. It goes to 16. Is it 500? Don't make any. So all the while you're reducing this dosage, you're extending that curve out into space longer and longer and longer. But the thing is, is your body will never, ever, ever have the impetus to manufacture testosterone until that curve dips below 500. So now the only variable is how quickly that happens. Right. That's the only variable you have to modulate. So literally what you want to do is when you want to be done the cycle, you just stop taking the fucking drugs. Yeah, and that's, it's funny, I talked to somebody I know is, has been on armor thyroid, it's a pig thyroid, and, and I guess they titrated up over a year, which is a side effect thing, and their doctor is telling right. them, we're going we're gonna to titrate you down over a year so that you don't end up hypothyroidal, and I just told them, I go, it doesn't work that way. If you yep. have any, if you are above your 
set point, right? Or to sort of use a yep. term that's more from body weight regulation. If your body, if you have a set point of X amount, anything that takes you even to that or above that will tell your body not to make any. And by tell, I mean yep. there is a pathway the body senses either the hormone itself or a byproduct and goes, this is how yep. much, this is a biochemical feedback loop. And if this doesn't make any sense, think of it like your air conditioner. If your set point is 72 and it is 74, the AC doesn't come on. You turn it to 73, the AC still doesn't come on. You turn it to 72, the AC may come on. You can use fans to keep the temperature cooler or hotter than you want it to be. There's no reason for the for the system to ever go, okay, I need to start working again. And I think it's basically yep. – uh, so, but then that raises the question. All right, so great. We've taken drugs for 12 weeks. The only way to get the system to come back on is to go off completely. Well, aren't yes. you basically fucked? I mean, this is the well, issue. Now spend four to eight weeks while your body is hopefully getting the system back online. Well, you know, it's funny. That apparently depends on how you're looking at the system. Um, I found that there's roughly two varieties of people. There's people that are actually mildly concerned about their health, and they actually want their you know, their balls to work properly. And okay. those people, it's very easy to convince you have to not take drugs and allow your body to get the message that it should manufacture and give it time to do so. Those people are pretty easy to deal with. Health is pretty easy to understand. Health is, by and large, not a drug-mediated process. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, the other group of people, the, the, the PCT rampant crazy people, they're actually not interested one bit in their health. What they're interested in is trying to preserve their drug accrued gains yeah. while not taking those specific drugs. So basically what you convince those people is, well, you can't take steroids anymore, so I suggest you take this other group of drugs, which will have simulate the taking of steroids so you maintain your steroid-like gains while you're not taking the steroids so that later you can take more steroids. Um, that's the reality of it. Most PCT schemes are not predicated on health, but on the artificial preservation of artificially crude muscle. Right. And, and I happen to believe there's a much better way to do that rather than taking a bunch of gonadal, you know, stimulants uh, like, you know, HCG and Clomid and all the damn things that people want to take. Um, right. I think the best way to allow a system to recover is to just that. Let it recover. Let it the fuck alone. Um, right. Now, I do believe, and I'm going to go off topic a little bit here, and this is something that people pay me good money for, so I'm not going to belabor it here, but I'll give you a touch and a taste and a moment to think. I do believe there's a very good argument and very valid science behind the idea of trying to preserve homeostasis, i.e. maintaining your elevated, quote, synthetic body weight. I believe there's okay. very strong reason to do that, but I think there's a much better way to do it than trying to fill yourself full of gonadal stimulants and making yourself hyper-fertile and all these strange things. Right. Um, I think the best, best way to let that recover is like I said, just let it recover. Um, well, now, having said that, let, let me yeah. let me throw this in there um, because it might be what you're going to say next. There, it, like for instance, I'll use myself as an example. I've used steroids the better part of 35 years, 30 years anyway, 30 years. 
um, started before I was 20. So, yeah, 30 years for sure. Um, it's very possible that if I went off steroids completely, I would have zero production. And I might wait six or eight weeks for it to come on, and it never does. I could literally at this stage be permanently broken. Now, I, in that rare condition, might actually need some of these PCT stimulants, you know, HCG, whatever, to try and get my body to operate properly. But that's combating an accrued medical condition. If you're just some schmuck who does one or two cycles a year, literally only on 12 to 24 weeks a year, you haven't done any permanent damage to your reproductive system. You just need to shut up and wait, and everything will be fine. Well, yeah, and that's, you know, there, there's, I've seen this in other, and we're going to probably get off topic like we always do. You know, yeah. you've seen this thing where it's like, ah, somebody ends up making themselves permanently hypothyroidal from thyroid abuse. And then you look at the research and it says, no, not really. And there's some weird disconnect, and I don't know if it's a dose and duration thing. I don't know if it's an individual Propensity. I don't. I don't know what's going on there. You know, the, admittedly, the the level of drug abuse and the duration at that level is pretty enormous. I know I've seen a paper. It was a handful of of guys that remained hypogonadal secondary to you know long term high dose anabolic abuse. Are some people more sensitive? Probably. Yes. It could be. You know, I think there's also the issue, and and people forget. Shit goes wrong with age. And I think yep. this is such a big confound that people ignore. It's like, all right, well, look, you started at 25, you're 40 now, and you came off and your testosterone's low. Guess what? You're 40 now. Like, I have bad yep. news for you. Like, admittedly, they're ending up below normal. So there may be something more going on. Like, maybe, again, maybe there's the possibility of permanent damage. It doesn't seem to show up much in the literature. But, but without getting into that, all right, so great. Guy does a 12-week cycle. He gains eight pounds of true muscle, whatever. He gained 12 pounds of water weight, which I also think is part of the terrifying PCT muscle like we talked about. <laughs> Guys like the side effects. When you gain 20 and half of that's water, you go off and, and oh, my God, you're shrinking. Um, you yep. know, you're losing muscle because it, we forget that there's a lot of things that count as lean body mass. I, I put a joke up on my Facebook wall. Like, if you ever want to fuck with a guy in the gym, go, hey, man, have you lost size? And they will go on an ice cream binge that day. You, you really want to fuck with the bodybuilder, that's that's what you tell them. Um, in the same way, if you want to screw with a female, you go, your arms are getting kind of muscly, and uh, they'll go do four hours of cardio. But regardless, I, I think that's part of it. But all right, so a guy's done 12 weeks. He's gained eight pounds of lean muscle. You know, he's not, he's not a monster. He's a 185. It's going to take... I don't know, eight, whatever, eight weeks for his, his, uh, his system to reset itself if he just does nothing. But he's going to feel terrible. He's going to be depressed. He's yep. going to be weak. He may lose yep. some muscle because now his testosterone is 200. He went from, even like you said, a moderate dose, 200 milligrams a week, which is a baby dose. It's TR hormone replacement. His testosterone was 800 above normal. He's gone from 1300, whatever, 500 plus 800. He's now at 200. Isn't he fucked? Because, I mean, isn't no. just a simple fact that he doesn't have the test, even the base testosterone to support that new muscle mass, won't that alone cause problems? Well, it depends exactly on, one, what you define as a problem, and well, two, okay. what the time frames associated with that are. 
Like, has he never, you know, returned to normal in terms of his oh, own production? No, and he never used steroids again? Yes, that muscle mass would slowly decline via homeostatic sure. properties, and he would return to basically a, you know, a human commensurate to the, you know, yeah. 200 uh, nanograms per deciliter that he has. But the reality is that doesn't actually happen. One of two things happens. Either the person does return to natural reproductive health, and right. their testosterone returns to 500, and they find some sort of equilibrium. They're more muscular than they started, right. but not as muscular as they were during their drug use, and so there's a net gain, but less than they had hoped. Or they can't wait that long, and they just take more drugs. So the reality always is somewhere in the middle. Right. And, you know, one random tidbit I think we touched on before, you know, but there's the whole concept of the the satellite cells in the myonuclear domain. And there's yep. a bunch of in-depth muscular bullshit that nobody cares about. Basically, steroids, we now know, have effectively yep. a permanent effect on muscle by, by increasing yep. satellite cell proliferation, by increasing myonuclear number. It's now realized that you can be on drug, you can be clean for three or four years. You took drugs for a decade. You know, that's the definition of clean now is two years without steroids. You still have a permanent advantage. Absolutely. That alone, almost in a weird way, it's like, yeah, you gained a bunch, you lost some, but it almost gives you a longer-term potential to regain it, it end up at that next. Not, you may not gain it all back. Not almost. It really does. It's, it's, it's pretty much established fact at this point. Yes, um, yeah, without question. Yeah. Um, which so is also one of yeah. the reasons why, and I'm not promoting this, but it's also one of the reasons why the aforementioned East German drug program, the GDR, took athletes at such a young age and exposed them to drugs sure. because oh, they were yeah. basically adapting their genetic potential upward. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, the other thing <laughs> I was going to say, you know, it's, it's interesting. We went from, you know, and you, you, you know, you, you kind of got in the shit of some guys from early days. People need to realize in the seventies and eighties, nobody knew anything about anything. These, these systems yeah. were simply not, the science wasn't there other than in the most general sense. And I'm, I'm going to come back to something in a second that I think is worth addressing, but it's, it's interesting to see how the drug use has changed among even the recreational Athlete, it's like, well, have yes. you realized that there's really no, or apparently no good solution to PCT? And I saw all kinds of shit. The World Anabolic Review talks about bridging with anabolics and using clenbuterol as an anti-catabolic, and Duchenne was like, yes. maybe creatine can help, or ephedrine, you know, all, all this stuff. That, the bridging was more for drug testing stuff, but yes. you know, bodybuilders did used to care about the overall health. They would do relatively reasonable cycles for, you know. There was a rumor, which I don't think is true, that they only used for uh, pre-contest back in the day, and I, I suspect strongly that that's a lot of bullshit. But certainly they weren't using high doses for decades at a time. Yeah, And at that point, if you are going to come off to try to clear your health parameters or whatever, PCT was an issue. Well, here's modern PCT. Don't ever come off. I mean, that, yep. that kind of, you might go to a cruising dose. I, I have a very good friend who I, I won't um, name, who very involved in, you know, same thing, di different, uh, very good knowledge base. And he's like, he, he's he's on the conservative end. Like, 
5,000 milligrams a week is not inherently, it's not 10 times better than 500, except for, you know, if you want to piss blood, I suppose. But, you know, he, he's like, you blast for 12 weeks at five to 600, and then you cruise at 200. And he's a big boy. He's over 200 pounds yes. lean, and he maintains on 200 milligrams a week, because that is still profoundly super physiological. Without yes, the slope, he consolidates, he kind of just, you know, whatever you want to call it, consolidates his muscle gains, gives his body a break in as much as it needs a break without, but yeah, that's, that's modern PCT. If you're going to go on, you better be prepared. And, and, to and quite honestly, and this is where I kind of, you know, almost wish I didn't speak my opinion so vocally, is I actually believe that that's probably healthier than the yeah. goofy PCT shit that people expose themselves to. Um, people act like because they're not, quote, steroids, there's no danger. Um, sure. Gonadal compounds have wide-reaching, you know, yeah. multi-tiered aspects, you know, on not just your testosterone levels, but your psychiatric health, your fertility, all sorts of things, uh, bone density. Some of these, some of these yeah. you know, HCG and columbine shit have impacts on your bone density and uh, estrogen re- uh, sensitivity and all sorts of things that are way more complicated than the average gym mullet is prepared to deal with. Um, By and large, steroids are not maybe the safest thing in the universe, but they're really simple and they're really safe in the big picture and they're very predictable. Uh, By and large, if you're going to abuse something, they're actually a really good choice to abuse because they don't have bizarre, you know, peripheral impacts. Right. Um, I think especially, and this is, this is something we, we said we were going to touch on and aren't really going to get into, you know, there's the issue of women's drug use, which is a whole separate topic because, you know, and and again, going back to the whole medical use, the reason that they were looking for high anabolics with minimal side effects versus high androgenics was frequently for bone density, it was for children. It was to yes. avoid the side effects. There's been literature they've used, they've tested Anvar and even Nandrolone Decanoate, a very long, that very long acting 19 more in women yes. in osteo, but they, they give them 25 milligrams once every three weeks. They do not, they want a long acting, <laughs> low side effects. They, it's one thing to give men their primary hormone. And by primary, primary reproductive hormone. Men are testosterone right. based and women are estrogen and progesterone based. And to masculinize a man isn't really, and yes, there are side effects, yes, zits and oily skin and all aggression and being a dickhead and all that sort of stuff. Um, but to masculinize a woman, to put a, you know, essentially her, her non-primary, the, the effects are profound, potentially permanent, and very yeah. concerning. And this, this is why you, but, but again, those drugs were, were, they were trying to create drugs that had, Certainly less benefits, but they want to do, you know, you don't want to masculinize a grandma. She doesn't. Right. Maybe she, maybe she does want to grow a clitoromegaly. Who knows? But that's, that's her. But they were avoiding a lot of those things. With men, steroids by and large, unless you're really going crazy, I mean, they're, despite all the scare tactics, they're exactly what? Zero associated deaths with steroids per se? Zero. Yep. Zero. That's a profound number when you think about it. You know, yeah, you think about how many deaths there's been. Yeah. Aspirin killed more people last year than steroids ever have. And it's like, yeah, insulin, the ancillaries, insulin, DNP, 
diuretics, that's dropped a couple people. But anabolic steroids, in the big scheme of things, at, at reasonable right. doses, not only profoundly safe, but frequently profoundly healthy. Um, yeah. Especially for men, you know, as, as potentially, not even potentially, as theoretically problematic as high doses of it, testo- high levels of testosterone are, are, low levels of testosterone in men are profoundly detrimental. So unhealthy. There's a huge push yes. on, for hypogonadal men. Just to replace the 500 is life-changing from both a health yes. and a well-being point of view. Um, it's truly, truly enormous. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, you know, every, everybody and their brother has a prescription for you know, Lipitor and Viagra, and most of those people, literally what they need is, is, a, is a 200 milligram shot of testosterone, and their yeah. blood lipid profile normalizes, and their dick works. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, so that kind of like, I still, I, I want to harp once more on PCT, because realistically, sure. you know, you made that point. For a lot of people, their drug use depends on what they can get, and hopefully what they can get that's real, <laughs> and right. what they can afford, right? Not everybody can afford or wants to stay on year-round. So other than simply telling them, go off, deal, uh, you know, uh, other than the whole HCG clomid approach, right? So, so one thing we didn't really touch on, okay, we, we know there's this feedback loop. Testosterone levels go up. It tells the axis to produce less. This happens through luteinizing hormone and follicular stimulating hormone and all that good stuff. Now, it seemed like a big, and it was always assumed, that testosterone itself was the signal. And I think it was, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, too. So it, it turned out I in do. the mid-90s. And I think, actually, Pat Arnold may have been the one to make this discovery. I was rereading an old Muscle Media 2000. It actually turns out that estrogen tells yes. the hypothalamus what to do with testosterone levels, yes. which brings up a whole nother something you touched on with, you know, the 19 nors, which we know don't convert to estrogen. They don't aromatize. Correct. Testosterone that do, and the DHT, of course, I believe don't. Um, that's That's outside of what I know. Um, yes. So one, right, decadic. People take deca, mm-hmm. and there isn't that due to estrogen as well? Is it, um, is it estrogen that and aromatize, or is that something else? No, actually, it's it's two things that are very interrelated, and they're exactly what you're saying. Um, a, a drug like androlone, because of the, um, the enzymatic alteration to the original testosterone, you know, 19 nor, Latin folks, nor means without. If you draw the molecule at the 19 position, it ceases. It stops at the 19 position where testosterone yeah. continues to more carbons. So it's a, a truncated version of testosterone, and because of that truncation, it's not able to become estrogen. It's not convertible to estrogen. Or if it is, it's at a radically reduced rate. Okay, yeah. so you have a drug that does not convert to estrogen. So you're elevating the androgen and anabolic side of things with no estrogen. And now as your natural testosterone goes down, your body lacks the ability to manufacture the necessary estrogen, keyword is necessary, to mediate the male libido. So now you've got to, you, you lack the raw materials to manage and, and manufacture the necessary estrogen to have an effective libido, and then to double whammy in a situation, 19 doors also are stimulatory of progesterone, 
which is okay. also contraindicatory to the male libido. So you've got a, you, you lack the ability to manufacture estrogen, and you're giving the chemical signal to downregulate libido because of the progesterone. So it's basically castrating the male aspect right. of males. So that that's one of the major reasons why I'm a less than a big fan of 19 nors, with one exception. If you happen to be the asshole that can tolerate it, and I, yeah. I actually happen to be one, um, right. I can take all the nandrolone I like and get no downregulation to my libido. I don't know why that is. I simply know huh. that I'm that guy. Um, okay. And be, so because of that, I can take a lot. My joints feel magnificent because yeah. of the you know interstitial swelling and bursal swelling and all the clever shit that comes along with that progesterone. So basically, I can walk around quote pregnant. <laughs> yeah, if that's right. not comical. You know, from a, from a, from an endocrinology point of view, my body thinks it's pregnant all the time when yeah. I went on endocrine, but I can still have a male libido. So it's, okay. I'm the one quirky individual, but certainly don't bank on being that guy because you'll most likely be very disappointed. Okay. Now, so in that sense, like you know, and it's and it's again, it's interesting. Back in the '80s, men men fear estrogen; they just do, yeah. and, and certainly yeah. excess excess estrogen can be problematic in terms of gyno and water retention, you know. But, again, it, what, pe- what, re- what people forget, I remember I had a class years ago and he made this, like there's, a, there's frequently an inverted U-shaped curve to anything. Yep. Too much is bad, too little is bad. Enough is and, where you want to be. You, there's an and, and interestingly, And interestingly, something you said earlier, you were exactly right. Usually the too little is worse than the too much. Sure, potentially. Um, but people yes. found out, they were like, ah, this converts to estrogen, estrogen bad. They started taking anti-estrogen uh, drugs of various types. They didn't grow as well. And, it, you know, this was that, that early observational thing that, well, clearly there, we need some estrogen for the maximal anabolic, the maximal uh, benefits of anabolic steroids. So going to, to the thing, all right, so the 19 nors can potentially, you know, but always the irony. Everybody takes these <laughs> drugs to look great and get women, and their dicks won't work. It's just the irony of yep. life. Natural guys yep. want to get lean and have a six-pack, and, yeah, you can't get it up, so what good is this doing you? Anyway, um, yep. would could you offset the effects of Decadic if you get it with adding an aromatizable androgen? Will that produce yes. enough estrogen? That, okay. that is that is the, the, the real... You know, that is the, the real thing. Um, and that's why I said that people overuse testosterone kind of as their root, you know, okay. root androgen as their root drug. Whereas literally, if you wanted to take a thousand milligrams of mandrolone, literally all you have to do is take 800 milligrams of mandrolone paired with 200 milligrams of testosterone. You'll still, as you said, be seriously super physiologic. You'll still get plenty of free testosterone to convert to estrogen to keep libido and psyche working properly, but you get the cool anabolic effects of the mandolone. It's really not nearly as difficult to do as people make it out to be. Sure, um, you just it's, need to pump in a little bit of an aromatizable drug to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, again, with the, with the mandolone, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a bad example. I have met a few people that are just so sensitive to the progesterone effects that any androlone is, is negative, 
But that applies to everybody. There's that ran- well, one yeah, random what? asshole that's, that's allergic sure. to, you know, amoxicillin, and any amount of it's going to fuck them up. It doesn't yeah. mean amoxicillin is a shit drug. It just means don't give it to that guy. That's all, that's yeah. all that means. Yeah, which is always that, that interesting thing, you know, in, in as much as I occasionally see people talking about their steroid use. You know, one guy will use testosterone, straight testosterone, and feel great. And we'll yep. try, think, you know, try something else. We'll try, you know, and, and logically a sustenon blend. That should work better. And they take and feel like shit. They get yep. whatever, whether it's for whatever reason. And then other people will take a 19 nor. Fantastic. It's just like that is what they feel good on or Dianabol versus or whatever it is. Some people can take all the Anadrol and never feel bad. I remember Duchesne saying, it makes you strong and aggressive, and you feel a little bit sick. Some people, so yeah. that's just so. Anyway, so back to the PCT thing, right? So this article again, an old Duchesne piece when they made this realization that that the hypothalamus is actually sensing estrogen levels. So basically, yes. what what this means is that when estrogen was going up, the hypothalamus—that's what told it that your testosterone was elevated, which meant yeah. that it should downregulate the system. So. You know, the old idea, and you, you even brought this up, you said most approaches to PCT are moronic because people go off with, in their last thing, they take an injection without realizing that even an end state, even a fairly short-acting testosterone, it's staying in the system. It, you know, people don't know what a half-life is, and <laughs> it will not drop. You made the point that you're not immediately in recovery. That is still in your system no. for at least a month, right? Yes. It takes a while for it to completely clear. So Duchesne's new idea for PCT was you should stop your aromatizable drugs a month before the end of your cycle, and the only reason to switch to a non-aromatizing drug is to bridge until estrogen recovers, or sorry, estrogen goes back down, but yes. while keeping at least some anabolic stimulus. From a PCT standpoint, is there not at least some logic to that? Deliberately trying to bring estrogen down but not making that the the very end of the cycle, doing it a month out so the yep. injectable clears while at least keeping something in there. I absolutely, and I actually even do something very similar with my clients, but instead of doing that with more different steroids like you just alluded to and like Dan would have, because that was the only option in well, the right. 80s and 90s, sure. in the modern era, we have so many other anabolic potentials that are not sex hormones. We have the access to insulin, growth hormone, IGF-1, all things that will deliver a very strong non-sex hormone-based anabolic stimulus. So you're essentially bridging that with anabolic stimuli that have nothing to do with the androgen receptor. That's how I would do that. And again, just to, to your... And a nod to exactly the logic you laid out is for estrogen to decline back into normal ranges and theoretically for androgens to climb back into normal ranges or at least fall into normal ranges depending on, you know, what's going on under the hood and allowing a level of sex hormone normalization while still receiving overall a net positive anabolic stimulus. Why? Or at least, you know, without... (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, an anti-catabolic stimulus. Like exactly, which is, which is the same thing. Not shrink. Yeah, in fact, yeah. All right. Well, right. I think that certainly covers the whole, you know, would there be any logic then to 
you know, rather than using an anti-estrogen on cycle to limit the quote-unquote side effects, because all you're going to do is limit your growth, to putting in an anti-estrogen at the end of the cycle to try to more rapidly bring down estrogen while the, you know, whatever the final compound is. There is, in fact, very solid logic to that, save one point, which is, which is the one that I hammered. No, it actually even does work. It it really does do, you know, an aromatase enzyme inhibitor does exactly what it says it does. It's going to inhibit the enzyme that cleans off and manufactures estrogen. So it it will do that. Here's my argument against that, and and it's twofold. One, um, what I said earlier is the less drugs you take, the better off you are. Okay, that's key. People just don't acknowledge that well enough. And secondly, again, it's talking about how people know a little of something but lack the bigger picture. The concept that you just laid out completely ignores the idea of binding globulins. You don't realize that the whole time your estrogen and testosterone levels are whatever they're doing, you're building up an enormous cachet of these hormones in a holding pattern in your binding globulin. So even if you shut down the production of estrogen, you're still going to get that release from the decay of binding globulins based on your protein turnover rate. So you're still going to get an enormous dump of estrogen over the coming weeks. So it's one of those situations where, again, it's coming whether you fucking want it or not. Yeah. So why not, why not just own up to it, weather the storm, come out the other end in the best condition possible, and yeah. then start the process again? Yeah. And that's, you know, uh, and maybe this leads into the next issue you, I know you wanted to touch on. Like, th- this is the thing I've seen. Again, my focus has typically been fat loss. Everybody wants all, they want the thermogenic effect. They want the, they, you know, I used to see these supplements. Side effect free ephedrine. No non stimulant ephedrine. You know, what's not, you know what non stimulant ephedrine does? Nothing. Because the side exactly. effect and the biological effects are. Not identical, but coupled, right? You cannot, cannot get a, you cannot get a sympathetic response to mobilize fat and burn calories and not get stimulated from it. It does not work that way. And of course, that's what they were trying to do for decades with the anabolic androgenic results. And, and as Dan exactly. you know, found out, yeah, low to, you know, high anabolic, low androgenic compounds don't have side effects, including growth. <laughs> like they don't, I mean, well, not, not that rapid growth. Like they have a very slow right. buildup effect. But people wanted, and fine in medicine, totally different thing. You need a mild postmenopausal osteoporotic woman. You don't need a lot of testosterone signaling. You need a little bit. But that brings us to the whole issue of these selective androgen receptor modulators, the SARM, <laughs> which are trying to achieve the same thing. They want to target the androgen receptor, which we know there's one. There is not a testosterone, and, like, this is is the AR, it's the same receptor. But they want to get, they want to have their cake and eat it, too, and get the benefits without the negative. Can this, two questions, can this be done, and does it matter for athletes? Like, again, this is all coming out of clinical medicine. Outside of the GDR, physicians were not trying to make drugs to build athletes. They don't care. The drugs came out of this. EPO was used for anemia. It was used for people that were in chemotherapy, and the endurance athletes went, well, that sounds like a fine idea. And yep. 
the growth hormone was for children that don't produce growth hormone. And the athletes were like, right. that sounds like a fine idea. And all these drugs. Well, you know what the problem was? I, I want to interrupt you there because I, yeah. I heard something really. Lane Norton, to me, is the infinite source of entertainment. The dumb uh-huh. shit that comes out of his mouth just makes me chuckle on a moment-to-moment basis. Yeah. But I actually, no I actually heard him say, I heard him say one thing that I agreed with. And it's probably, out of the million words I've heard come out of his mouth, it's the one thing I agree with. It's okay. largely athletes latched onto growth hormone because it had the word growth in it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't disagree. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, it could, it could fucking make your toes longer, but the fact that it's titled with the word growth made him go, fuck, I need that, give me that. Well, I'm still getting, uh, you know, I still maintain that that the scientists made a mistake, right? So we know IGF-1, insulin growth factor, which blah, 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 but there's there's an IGF-1 isoform in muscle that we know is responsible for it, and it's called it, and they called it mechano growth factor because it's it's released in response to mechanical stimulus. I'm like, if you're going to call it MGF, call it muscle growth factor, call it myogenic growth factor. Call it motherfucking big growth factor. Like, why did you guy? Like, ah, I think they just missed such a trick. But then again, bodybuilders have been like, muscle growth, muscle growth. That's what I want. I mean, MGF one yeah. is the fantastic drug, um, spot injected. I don't know. Maybe it is being used, but um, oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah, yes, it is. Yeah, oh heard, yeah. Um, talk about uh, talk about a localized growth effect. And, um, yeah. but anyway, so yeah, I, I can believe that, you know, that the name of it was a big factor. But anyway, I, com- I completely yeah. threw things off topic, but I just, right. I thought it was a good, a good opportunity, one, to bash him, and two, to actually sure. say something relevant. Is that, you know, I yeah, do think that's the big reason why growth hormone got, a, got its popularity. It's, it's fucking, it back when it was called, uh, uh, um, STH, when it was oh, yeah, perfect hormone, yeah. nobody gave yeah. it yeah, whatever, that's just another hormone, fuck that thing. But yeah, boy, when they change the name to growth hormone. <laughs> yeah, you know, in, you know, same thing with you know, somatomedin. This is actually the chemical name for uh, insulin-like growth factor one. That's not sexy. It, exactly. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Somatomedin C was like, yeah, whatever. That does sound like medicine. Like, I don't want that. Yeah. Right. It's too funny. <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to SARMs, the selective antigen yes. receptor modulator. Um. I get asked about them literally on a daily basis. And my intention was at some point in the future to do a show on them uh, yeah. with someone I have no idea who, maybe even you, because I'm yeah. running out of uh, I'm running yeah. out of people that really are are, are, are are worth talking to on this subject. But here's the thing with SARMs. First of all, I want to just really quickly tell the listener what that is. Okay. Okay. They are very specific in their definition. They are non- sex hormone-based compounds, meaning they are completely different than steroids. They are not, all steroids share a root shape and design that makes them, you work that lock and key analogy. They are all based on the same skeleton key that goes into the lock. These drugs are literally entirely different, but they just happen to be able to fit into that lock and in stimulate some aspect of the turning of the key. Okay, that some aspect is the key gig. Here's the thing. SARMs do, in fact, build muscle. SARMs do, in fact, cause a minor downregulation in the natural uh, HPTA axis. 
access. Not a big one, but they do. So this idea that they're, like, scot-free and you can just take them to your heart's content, that's wrong. Um, okay. In very large doses, they do, in fact, cause a downregulation of testosterone. But here's the problem with SARMs, and the problem is exactly the reason they're great for medicine, is they are so specifically, by their definition, selective. They right. select only the androgen receptor, so they don't function on any peripheral tissue. They don't act on the brain. They don't act oh, on the okay. kidneys and all these other things. So first and foremost, you're not going to feel like you're on steroids because by definition you're not. So there's an immediate disappointment in, hey, I don't feel, it doesn't feel like it's working. Okay. Right. Secondly, they don't, they don't function on peripheral tissue so you don't get water retention. You don't get okay. carbohydrate retention. You don't get production of creatine phosphate, creatine synthase. You don't get these things. So again, there's a huge measure of disappointment on the athletic level because the only thing you get is a slightly elevated expression of protein, which okay. by its very nature, you can't notice it for a, in a day, in a week, yeah. in a month. You have to wait weeks and weeks to see that one pound on the scale. Now, that one pound is magic, that fucking real muscle. Yeah, right. It's, it's, it's so subsumed and in the background that basically you're just now kind of, I, I, it's, I've coined a new phrase and I don't think it's going to pick up, but I, you know, SARM using athletes are supernatural. They're, right. they're, they operate just like naturals, only a little bit faster. They're supernatural. Okay. <laughs> so the problem with, the problem with SARMs is that they're actually so well designed and so good at their job, they're inherently and always disappointing to someone expecting steroid-like results. Now, there's two places where I think they'll probably shine, uh, and they're both really interesting, quite honestly. One, I suspect that people like myself will find that they have great application for female athletes. Because okay. they are so selective, we might find, and I say might because they're new and we haven't had enough time to apply them yeah. in this fashion to, to bear this out, but I think we will find that they have measurably less reproductive impacts and masculinizing impacts on female athletes. So, because by and large, women don't want rampant libidos, you know, and a mustache and, you know, a bad attitude. So, by using SARMs to get their anabolic stimulus, we might find more muscular, more feminine athletes in the end. So I think that's a really solid place to look for benefits. And the other place we're going to find use for them is something Dan Duchesne always said, and I know the conversation always goes back to him because yeah, he, so, he was so fucking far ahead. And he always said that modern pharmacology can cure obesity right now. He said, give somebody a stimulant, to give them to get them off their ass and crash yeah. their appetite, give them metformin to improve their insulin sensitivity so they can yeah. operate on reduced calories, and yeah. give them a mild and this is the key word a mild anabolic to preserve their muscle mass in yeah. a low calorie environment. Yeah. That uh, is where SARMs are going to shine. You take some fat ass, you know, milky hot, you know, soccer mom that wants to lose weight, they they crash diet and their muscle mass goes to shit and now yep. they look like a bow legged hair you know, meth addict. SARMs are gonna be the place 
to fix those people. They're going to be able to retain, you know, preserve their muscle mass. They're going to get yeah. just enough anabolic stimulus to not be catabolic. It's going to basically stem muscle catabolism in a very low-calorie environment. So you're going to see all these soccer moms and CrossFit moms popped up yeah. on SARMs because it's the, by far a better choice than Anivar. That's, that's my opinion. I think that I'm seeing the future there. I think you're going to see SARMs be wildly useful in dieting and female athletes, which are oftentimes the same thing in a sense. Right. Um, but, but I think that's where you're going to see the benefits. For regular athletes, most athletes want aggression and sure. uh, water retention just as much as they want muscle growth. So I don't right. think you're ever going to see SARMs be very effective for athletes. I think they're going to be an afterthought. They're going to be, like, everybody knows that clobuterol is somehow kind of a little anabolic, but nobody right. takes it for an anabolic properties. Nobody. Right. You, that's, that's kind of where I see SARMs. Everybody knows that they're a little bit anabolic, whatever. But the bottom line is, if I'm gonna, if I could spend three dollars on a couple milligrams of SARMs, or I could spend three dollars on an Anadrol, I'm gonna take a fucking Anadrol every time. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, from a, okay, assume, assuming an athlete is willing to, you know, accept the overall lesser effects, do yes. you think they will be as anabolic in a muscular growth Like, Assuming you're willing to no. take the slow route. Do you think in a male, nope. especially? Okay. No. So, so no, they'll okay. never, just like you said, because the androgenic and anabolic attributes are so deeply intertwined, they're so far removed that you will never see the rampant growth of anabolic steroids. You'll see growth above physiologic levels, no yeah. doubt. This is not an argument. But will they ever give you comparable results, even if you scale that time frame up, I mean, people are taking steroids now for two decades. Are you ever going to catch up to that? Fuck no. Yeah. It's silly to think so. You know, yeah, if, you did it in, if, if you did it in, like, if you put these bizarre parameters and you said, like, if you could only do five cycles in your life, yeah, right. and that's it, and, you know, you made these weird parameters, you could probably contrive a scenario where they're equal or better. But just remember, it's fucking contrived. Steroids yeah. work, and they're relatively safe, and they're relatively cheap, and they're really not going to fucking go away. Just stop thinking well, that. Yeah. I, I, have, I suspect, like my own gut feel, if this isn't being done already, there, there is that, I mean, A, you've got the gym bros who just want to get a little bit bigger and stay buff for the ladies. Um, I think, I suspect naturals will somehow make a... <laughs> They will play a logical game and somehow conclude that these aren't drugs, hence natural, hence there's still nat there's a there's a weird mental gymnastics that naturals yep. will often go through. And the same way there's yep. a weird mental gymnastics that drug users will often go through. And my my favorite, I know, I'm sure you think this is great, going, Oh, testosterone's natural, the body makes it. Oh yes, I hear that all the time. Uh, I hear that all the time. Whatever, I mean, you know, you want to maintain, but whatever. Um, but I, think I, I literally, just just a week ago, I had somebody tell me, oh, I'm comfortable taking all the testosterone you think I should, because, you know, that's what your body makes. But I, I don't yeah, feel right. good about taking, I don't feel good about cream of all, that's, that's man-made. What? Yeah, it's, it, I, I know the, the mental disconnects are amazing sometimes, but... Um, <laughs> But anyway, all right, so... 
the, the mental yeah, image that draws up to me is the idea that, you know, testosterone is natural. I envision some sort of, like, milk maiden, like, you know, <laughs> so trying to, oh, I have to go get the testosterone. <laughs> well, you know, and I would point out to these guys that, you know what, women's breast milk actually contains colostrum, so get it to does. it. Enjoy. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been the occasional rumor. Rumor of bodybuilders <laughs> actually doing that, but whatever. Well, um, Mike Mentor drinking tea and all that exactly. funny shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so we, you mentioned, you know, estrogen and progesterone. You know, the, these are yes. kind of, again, men freak out over them because they are women's hormones. Even some women, you know, I still see it banish the estrogen because they don't, they don't, they think it makes their hips and thighs fat. Wrong, but neither here nor there. So, but clearly men, if in excess, excess estrogen can cause problems. There can be some, you know, progesterone, you know, for, for guys listening to this. Like, these are the primary female reproductive hormones. Estrogen actually has a lot of beneficial effects. Increases Absolutely. your fat burning, decreases amino acid oxidation. Actually, if you inject men yep. with, with estrogen or give them a patch, they will burn more fat during aerobic exercise. Less Women actually lose less muscle than men. Estrogen involved in the remodeling part of progesterone, nasty shit. Uh, it, it causes protein catabolism. It uh, does a lot of very bad things. Um, so clearly for men, estrogen progesterone control or modulation or whatever you want to call it can be an issue. Like what are the issues? What do they do about it? Should they worry about it? Um. Most people don't like my answer on that. Most people want to hear about a a drug that fixes it. You know, they want to hear that, oh, yeah, take cabergoline and it will, you know, know, break down the enzyme that produces progesterone and you won't have a problem. And that's accurate. That is, in fact, accurate. But my argument is, why are you now taking two drugs to accomplish theoretically what you could accomplish with one well-selected drug? If yeah. said compound gives you progesterone problems, don't fucking take it. You yeah. Know what I mean? it's, the, it's the old going to the doctor that says, it hurts when I do this. Well, the obvious yeah. answer is, first of all, stop fucking doing that. Well, yeah. Okay? That's going to be step one. Don't do that. So, with the exception of necessity, and that might come up if you, you know, yeah. you have to be the drug test or you have to look a certain way to compete. Okay, well, I can accept that the only way to accomplish that is with compound X, and compound X is mildly problematic, so we're going to do this on the short term. But as a rule, in general, if the compound is problematic for you, the best solution is just don't fucking take it. Right. Um, you know, I know that being the, quote, drug guru, I'm supposed to be, you know, pro-drugs and go take drugs and they're great, but you got to have some common sense. You know, if, 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 if drug X, Y, or Z gives you negative side effects, don't take it. Take one of the other ones. Well, and that's, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, if you want to make an, an argument that, um, you know, that you want to talk about, if you look at mainstream medicine, frequently this is what's happening. Well, here's the drug to fix problem one. Well, now we have yep. to give you another drug to fix the side effects of drug one. Now this causes another set of, so here's a third drug to correct the side effects. Side yeah, absolutely. From drug two to raise side effects from drug one. It's like you end up chasing down the side oh, effects. Oh, absolutely. Like perfect, more perfect, perfect example is, oh, here, you need Lipitor to reduce your cholesterol. 
Well, now your cholesterol goes so low that you don't have the uh, cholesterol raw materials to produce estradiol, which ultimately it results in, oh, now you're now you have erectile dysfunction. No problem. Here, take, you yeah. know, whatever. Uh, what, what's the one they give? Not Viagra, the other one. Uh, yeah. So, you know, be, you know, because of your Lipitor, now you need Cialis. They might as well just make one drug with both, you know, both one pill with both drugs in it. Uh, yes. Well, yeah, and it's, it's it, yeah, some of those weird compounds, they, which they frequently have done or from time to time yep. have done. Um, you know, there's, again, I, I look through my World Anabolic Review just because I find it interesting, and you do find these weird drugs. It's like, well, it is a testosterone with a little bit of estrogen. Well, this is for cattle. Sten. I mean, these are, that these was are old Mexican. That was yeah. old Mexican stent. I'm fun, it's, well, you're the only person that even remembers that drug. It was 100 milligrams of testosterone. Testosterone enanthate and I think 10 milligrams estradiol. Yeah, it was 10 milligrams. And let me tell you something. That shit worked like fucking magic. You took a shot of that and an hour later you felt a foot taller and your dick was so hard it hurt. I mean, you're, you're, my, I, seriously, I I remember just thinking to like laying like in college because I used to go across the border to Mexico and buy them for a dollar. Um, wow. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. There were a dollar of fucking hundred milligrams. I remember being sitting on my on my floor at home wishing this goddamn thing would go away. Just like, please make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Um, okay. So basically the, the quick solution to estrogen progesterone control is if you have a problem, take a different drug. Fair enough. Take, move away from the problematic drug. Don't oh, take yeah, three different drugs. Yeah, people want to take a perfect example. Like I said, Americans love affair with testosterone. They want to take fifteen hundred milligrams of testosterone, and then because of that, right. they need Arimidex to control the estrogen. They need right. Tyrogolin to control the uh, the progesterone. They need um, you know a, a blood pressure medicine because they're swelled up like a fucking pig. So at the right. end of it, they're taking four or five different drugs to get the anabolic effect that they can get. For less money, sure. just by taking Primavol and Omastron or, or fucking even Anavar. Um, it's just insanity. I don't understand why people can't work their way through that. I realize that not everybody has, you know, college degrees and a lifetime of studying, but it just seems like you ought to notice, like, wow, I'm really swallowing a lot of pills just to do what I'm doing. Maybe there's a better way. Yeah, I just, you know, it's always, I think it's it's very endemic to, well, I mean, all athletes are extremists. So some is good more than others. Bodybuilding takes a, there's a, per, we talked about this, there's a personality profile that comes along with bodybuilding. There's an extremist attitude, and of course, you know, Duchenne used to write about, you know, uh, drug lust. You know, you would hear rumors or stories about what the top pros were getting. And, you know, he says, like, you know, the natural, the, the lower ranks are shrinking because there's no money. But as soon as a pro breaks through and gets a, uh, starts making some money off of endorsements, they're, they gain 20 pounds because suddenly they can <laughs> afford the growth hormone, the pricey stuff that you simply, you know, he's like, but that just, it causes what he called, you know, growth hormone lust at the lower levels. 
when people think there's a miracle compound or a miracle dose or more is better, and, of course, everybody lies about what they're actually taking, or just take more yep. because they think they should. I mean, again, this, this friend of mine, very conservative, like if you can get, you can get most of the effects at 40 micrograms of Clen, don't take three times that. But that's what people do. Agreed. And they keep escalating it, you know, the point you made early on. They feel like it's not working anymore. Well, no, it is. It's just your body is, is – dieting drugs are like this very much. It's like, oh, ephedrine stops working. No, it doesn't. Ephedrine is still raising metabolic rate by 5%. Your body has lowered yes. your metabolic rate by 5%. How, how, hallelujah. I, I you wish went more from people would pay the fucking – at the start, so now you're just at 100. But if you took the right, event out, you'd be at 95. So you're still exactly. getting a benefit. It just doesn't feel like it. So they have I to wish like, people uh, would. I wish people would listen to more Lyle McDonald because that in itself is worth the price of admission, no matter what the admission is. You know, folks, just pay attention. It's so simple. Uh, but yeah, so you do. You just get these. Like, well, if a gram is better, and again, I've seen some of the old supposed drugs. Maybe they were taking this much, and maybe at the pro level, I doubt they need it. But whatever you think your competitors are doing, you have to do, and then do ten percent more. Um, yep. It's just it's the it's the nature of it, and we've gotten away from the very reasonable cycles. That, yeah, guys are sixty pounds heavier, but at what cost having to do, escalate 10 times the dose? The average guy doesn't need or wants to be 280 to gain. You even look at the Basin study, still one of the, the classics. Yes. He gave 600 milligrams of testosterone a week, which is a big dose, but not ridiculous when you hear about, you know, Paul Borson and his one gram a day. So <laughs> they gained 10, 10 kilos of Lima, nearly 20 pounds. Some of it was surely water, but a lot of it was real muscle. And it's like, to your meat example, go to your butcher. Have them cut 20 pounds of lean meat. See how fucking much that is. Right. Imagine right. that it's, it's, distributed exactly. evenly over your body. That is, that's, that's plenty. That, that's a year's worth of progress in 20 weeks. Oh, that's, are you shitting me? You're, wow, you're the natural guy. How many that's natural games? That's, that's a beginner's first year. That, that, um, in, in general, I tell people this all the yeah. time. They think I'm fucking crazy, but you can maybe re either support or refute this. The average person doesn't gain 30 pounds of muscle in a fucking career. Well, yeah. This is the, like, if you're super lucky, you know, you might gain that much in, in your first year, and after that, it's going to slow way the fuck down. But, but yeah, so like, that's, that's why I love the. Drugs only help a little. Okay, in 20 weeks, they gained <laughs> over half and possibly as much as the average person might might gain in a career in 20 weeks. Do not it, tell it, me that exactly. they only help a little. Fuck, fuck right. you. Yeah, um, yeah you I, I, I agree with you entirely. My favorite response, and I'm just going to pick on drug users here for a little bit because I can do that because I fucking made half of them. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite is you got some guy that's my size, you know, they're Five foot four, 220, 230 pounds, 10% body fat. That's, that's me. That's where I am. And then this is what comes out of their mouth. Well, I'm just trying to maximize my genetic potential. Really? Your, your genetic potential is fucking 40 pounds behind you, asshole. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you think yeah, genetically I, you're, getting, you're getting that big? Like, I, I, I swear the drug users forget they're using drugs. I'm like, what the fuck? Is, if you're still chasing your genetic potential, what do you take your drugs for? 
Yeah, and I think some of that is, again, those mental gymnastics. You still see the, oh, oh, you know what, it's, it's all hard work. Okay, then why is your bench 100 pounds more when you're on? And I've had people go, yeah. well, they probably work harder on the drugs. I'm like, they can work 10 times as hard, and you still won't get there. Period. No, absolutely. Period. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, not, we've, we've bragged on left side enough, but as much as all, we've got all these new technologies, we've got conjugate and chains and bands and all this bullshit, so why are raw records stagnant? Why? Tell me this. Why, why isn't this adding kilos to the raw lifters? You know who's getting bigger numbers? Not stronger, bigger numbers. The gear guys. It's gear. Yeah. It's only, it's gear and shitty judging. Yep. If you look at a 1,200-pound squat, it's six inches above what Captain Kirk did for a double at a 1,000. It's not the training. It's the training is optimizing the gear, fair enough, but it's not – nobody's stronger than they were. They are better yep. – and, and there's, a, there's a TED Talk by a guy, I forget, who looked at all this. And he goes, if you look at the, the performances, the improved performances in human sport, it's all equipment. Yep. It's the surface of the track has had more – the it's surface of the track has had more. Yep. Yeah. They, they actually, I saw a really, uh, I think it was in Sports Illustrated. They talked about the, the surface of the track in 100 meters has had more impact on speeds than the actual athletes. Yeah, I saw, he did, I think, a number and he said if you, if you went back to the old running tracks, over half of the sub four minute miles go away. Period. Yep. I mean, there were guys in the 70s that had an 85 VOT max, Prefontaine. That has not changed. Muscular force capacity has not – none of this stuff has gone up. What has improved nope. – now, when, when they introduced those new magic swimsuits, people set records every heat. And as soon as they took them away, or in, in cycling, it's the drugs. When they cleaned it up, everyone was 5% slower. Well, are you going to actually tell me, did training devolve? Did people forget how to train in that year? No. When they took the drugs out of Olympic lifting, everybody was 5 to 10% behind the world records and couldn't touch them. Did, did they somehow – are they not training as hard? Yeah, bullshit. And the funny thing is – And the funny thing is – And the funny part is it really didn't remove the drugs. It just made them less well, proximal to the event. Sure. So they couldn't name, they couldn't keep nearly as much going into the exactly. competition. But it was like, exactly. yeah, either yeah. you want to tell me that the drugs aren't helping or you want to tell me that somehow – Nobody was able, they, they weren't training as hard. Like, really, you really going to tell me that? And, but yep. that's what people, they want to think it's just all the hard work and the drugs are just, you know, helping a little bit. Well, fine, yeah. then do it without the drugs. <laughs> you should prove, yeah. I'll be happy to be proven wrong. Show me that you can get even anywhere close. You know, why, yeah. why are most, nat go to a natural show, you know, the biggest class, 165. You want to tell me that these guys go into any gym, these guys train harder than the drug users. Absolutely. Diet as yeah. if not more meticulously, and they still can't get past it. So. Oh, yeah. A good friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Jared Feather, is a, a natural pro, and he is truly natural. And yeah. he is insane. He measures every morsel of food, counts oh, yeah. every crumb. You know, he, his workouts are way better designed than anyone I know, uh, yeah. way better executed, and for all his trouble, I'd say only, you know, he only walks on stage at 180 pounds. And the reason he only walks on stage at 180 pounds is because that's just about as fucking big as a human being can be yeah. at single-digit body fat w without drugs. Yeah, they, that's, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's the answer. You know, they're, 
there are no 220-pound natural people because there aren't, because they don't they don't get that big. Yeah. It, it just um, doesn't I, happen. Yeah, I think that there was, you know, and, and fine, people go, oh, sumo wrestling doesn't count. It's like, well, yeah, it does, because, A, these guys do actually train, and we know that you get a lot of mass if you get fat, and they top out about 100, maybe 110 kilos, but a lot of that's glycogen and connective tissue and, and non-muscle tissue. And if you diet yeah. that bastards down, you might, they might come into contest shape at 200 if they're lucky, but that's at the yeah, exactly. absolute top, highest level, you know, like that is a human max. And now we have guys walking around at 300 in contest shape, literally yeah. 64, you know, 60 to 80 pounds heavier than Arnold, one of the most gifted bodybuilders in the world at his peak. And you're going to tell me yep. that training and nutrition has improved that? No, don't just, ugh. Anyway, we can right. rant about or the, or, the, or the genome, yeah, the genome's improved that much. Yeah, it's food. Yeah, well, I, mean, I yeah, agree with you fine. entirely. More people, you know, more people are going into sport, no doubt about it. We've got a larger population base. I think we are seeing proportionally more big guys. You know, I've seen that counter-argument. Well, all the big, all the big guys go into football. And, well, fine, then they can retire and, you know, I don't, I don't buy it. Well, these guys exceed that, that fat-free mass index. Well, sure, and we know there's no drugs in football. Oh, no. There's right. never been. Oh, wait, they used to put Diana Ball on their cereal in the 80s. Come on. Yeah. Just, yeah. You know, even shit. at the collegiate shit. level. Shit, my grandfather swallowed Diana Ball like they were fucking breath mints. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so. this, this is not a question. I was there. I know. Yeah, yeah right. And he, he was a pro wrestler. My grandfather swallowed... I, I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm probably 100, 120 milligrams a day of Diana Ball just because... Why, why wouldn't you? It was cheap and it was there and they were, you know, they were called, quote, vitamins. Why wouldn't you take them? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And it was, it was totally legal at that point. So yeah, why wouldn't you? Um, all right. I think, did you have any other topics you wanted to? Oh, there's a thousand things I could mention. Um, but honestly, I think we did pretty good justice to the couple things we wanted to talk about. Um, you know, that cycle design needs to be you know, considered with a little more forethought in terms of what the drugs actually do and in terms okay. of what you're actually trying to get out of it. Um, right. By and large, PCT is a scam to sell you more and different drugs. <laughs> and and um, what we didn't touch on is you know, the pantheon of useful um, ancillary drugs, clobuterol, growth hormone, insulin, uh, metformin, all of those things. And I think that they probably warrant an entirely separate conversation because yeah. by and large they're, they're not steroids, so they kind of fall into a not steroid yeah. category. Um, and, and their use is as diverse as they are. It's a matter of, you know, what, what are you trying to get out of it? What do you need? What's the purpose for you doing it? So I think they all deserve their own thing and like, like we both agree uh, going into this, I think any conversation in terms of women is, oh, yeah. one, very delicate, and, two, very different than talking about men. Because yeah. you can't turn a man into – well, you, I guess you can in some well, sense. Right. You can turn a man into a, a bigger or better man, but you, you, when you start talking about applying sex hormones to women, you're literally talking about transgender mutation, and that requires – a great deal more specificity and skill. 
Um, sure. So, if unfortunately, yeah, it's, it's, it's being thrown out the window now in favor yeah. of, you know, it's, it's really – and, I mean, I realize, you know, people, athletes have, have frequently not cared and they're chasing that goal and, and whatever, but it's like even as coaches, there's a responsibility, you know, to, yeah. Absolutely. And, again, you know, Duchesne, once again, he you know, he one of my favorite articles by him, uh, Death Wish Dieting, the old Dirty Dieting newsletter. <laughs> Absolutely one of my – I reread it every couple, every few months because it's just such a, a, a fascinating piece. And, you know, and as much as Anadrol is thought of as a non-female-friendly drug, he was like, look, that one drug alone is all a woman needs, period. Yep. That's, it's better than ten more expensive drugs with more side effects that are usually faked, that are shitty anabolic. Like, that single drug alone is all a woman will need to get big and it'll work great for her pre-contest. And even at the time, he was yep. like... And if I take it out 10 days before, she'll pass the drug test. And you don't yep. have to worry about all this other goofy shit going on. Um, but, but even beyond that, it, you, know, he's like, you know, you can get a little masculinization, but most of it's reversible. It's not major. You know, it's like that, that single thing gets around a lot of the problems that women are going to run into or just as a coach. And then you hear coaches doing like, well, yeah, we're going to use that and subjectable testosterone and, all this other shit um, that just gets really, I don't know if it's because they're thinking from a male perspective in terms of dosing, don't care, don't know, um, and, you know, they're, they're literally ruining women permanently. You know, the GDR didn't give a shit. They, they were happy to ruin their athletes. That all came out later. Yeah. Um, but they didn't give a shit. That was about winning medals. Um, but you know, especially uh, you know I, have a, I have a certain respect for that attitude as long as that's your attitude. What I what what bothers me is people that you know somehow project this belief or this attitude that they're you're know, doing things quote the right way or the safe way or the whatever. Sure. And the, you know, the minute you say that, you're a fucking liar because there is no right way. There's no right way to a- apply male hormones to a female physiology. There's sure. More and less dangerous ways. There's no right way. Yeah, there are better or worse ways, and that's it. Although it is interesting there, just to, you know, completely tangential, there is now a tremendous amount of interest in low-dose androgens for older women, uh, certainly, um, for a number of reasons. Even, you know, birth control, one of the hilarious ironies is that birth control yeah, in addition to tanking a woman's hormones, part of the reason it works is it makes her not want to have sex with her partner anymore because it changes yeah. her, it tanks testosterone, it cuts it in half, cuts free testosterone in half. Like a lot of the effects, uh, or as I rudely told someone one time, a comedian I heard, you know the real reason birth control works? Makes you fat and has this and nobody wants to fuck you. She didn't think that was as yeah. funny as I did. But, but it does, like there's some interest in very low-dose androgens for women and older women, because older women, they lose their sex drive, they get a lot of health negatives. Um, we didn't talk about CIRMS, the selective estrogen receptor modulator, but there's another place that, that from a clinical standpoint, has the potential to be huge, because they have, they're yes. worried about women with breast cancer, and even the early drugs like Nolvidex were anti-estrogens one place and pro-estrogens another, and that's a real problem. Yes. They want to be able to target selectively the breast estrogen receptor without affecting the other and you know this is these are clinical uses. I don't I don't see any way CIRMS could have an effect or benefit for, for athletes even at a uh, fundamental uh, level. 
Um, well, it would depend on what their actual anyway. Yeah, it would depend on their actual structure because again, something that was pointed out mostly by Boris and Paul Boris was fucking okay. wicked smart about this is yeah. that a lot of people fail to realize that some of the reason the testosterone family of drugs works so well is because of the stimulatory effect on estrogen uh, yeah. interplays at the liver level, elevating the production of IGF-1, of liver-based circulatory yeah. IGF-1. In the presence of estrogen, your IGF-1 goes up. In the absence of estrogen, it goes down. So, <clears throat> depending on how these SARMs and CERMs ultimately work, it's possible that if they still stimulate the estrogen pro-estrogen effects at the liver, they might be, wind up being pro-IGF-1 without actually washing the rest of the tissues in estrogen. So it's, I'm not saying oh, that's okay, the I case, see. but ultimately, depending on the structure, they could have that ability. Or perhaps really clever chemists could intentionally coax out that aspect in, in a sort of a, a two-layer therapy where, you know, in the presence of this estrogen-modified drug and this growth hormone, you might get super, super physiologic levels of IGF-1, which could God. be wonderful in treating something like, you know, muscular dystrophy or something like that. Sure. So it's, it's not impossible, but that's really obtuse and abstract and not, not germane to this conversation, but sure, it's a sure, thing. Sure. But, you know, yeah. it's funny. One way or another, you know, athletes always find a way. Like, all these drugs yep. that you wouldn't, and usually it requires someone really looking outside of, the, you know, like the Ticklid Trentle thing. That didn't occur yeah. to anybody. And Dan, but Dan was very concerned about not having his athletes pass out. And, and it was much of, you know, he even talked about it. He was like, I hate the diuretic use. I hate the abuse. It's not good. It's really going to fuck up because, yeah, you know, yeah, people were dropping dead and just, going unconscious and he's like but if you know this is this is what's required and if you're going to do this or have to do this as the nature of your sport it only makes sense to do everything preventative in your power to limit the risk you can't the only way to eliminate them is not to do it <laughs> that this is the reality if you don't want the risk don't 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 do it. But if you're going to do it, you better do take do everything in your power to make sure you don't, you know, die or pass out or whatever badness can happen, which is sadly a lot of things at that level. Um, so, so yeah, it's you know, some way if there's a use for one of these drugs to maybe have a potential benefit, um, some athletes will figure it out and very much know before the before the research catches up with it. I mean, that is that is a reality. Bodybuilders have always, and, and athletes have certainly pushed the um, the boundaries by by coming up with very creative uses of these drugs, even when they weren't. It, the most. Innovation, my friend. Oh, innovation. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, which I mean, which came out of you know, this is the the goal to be the best. I, I recently reread a book called The Secret Race, it was by Tyler Hamilton about you know working with Postal and Lance. And it's like, yep, they jumped on EPO. They developed a test for you. It was actually a, a doctor, a doping doctor, who made a lot of money off his athletes, who figured out that, ah, we can, rather than going high doses at once, we'll microdose into subcutaneous fat and get all the benefits but pass the drug test. And then when that failed, yep. they went amazingly back to, to blood bags, to just flat-out blood doping 
that yep. hadn't had been replaced by EPA. That became the better way to do it. And then they had a, the most fascinating thing I read and reread in that book. They were talking about you had you had some athletes getting pop because they had been using anabolics when they did their blood removal. So when they retransfused yeah. it, even though they were clean at the time, they were reinfusing blood that was tainted. Yeah, I called it an yeah, echo yeah. positive. I think my favorite story. Talk about innovation. The poker cyclists take um uh ancillary riders. They take a full team, and only you know nine guys in my race. They take twelve guys on the team. They always ensure that one of the uh, secondary cyclists has the same blood type as the team leader. Yeah. Why do you think that much? They can use them. They they fucking straight up use them. They vampire them. They straight up will go. Your only job here is to carry blood that we can give to our top rider if he needs it. That's fucking crazy. But cycling, my god, the the way they've gotten around all these problems with just creative, it's insane. But that's the nature of elite level sport. Um, bodybuilding was always drug warfare, you know, because it was steroids and then anti-estrogens and thyroid and clen, and then we needed, you know, tanning drugs and had to thin the skin and water balance, and, you know, they just kept packing things on. Um, so, actually, do you know, did leptin ever make it into the pro ranks? Was it simply too expensive? Uh it, not only is it too expensive, but it's way, way, at the moment, at least all the feedback I've gotten, and this is, like, super, you know, cussy stuff, but the few people I've heard that are fooling with it, it's uh-huh. so wildly responsive that nobody can control it. Uh, really? The slightest okay. admi- yeah, the, the slightest administration just throws shit so far out of whack. You get people where they have... You know, appetites to the point where they're like literally going insane and gnawing on doorknobs, or they don't eat for they don't eat for five days. Interesting, huh? Fascinating. Um, it it, it really is. It, but you remember? Maybe you don't remember. But again, me being so immersed in the drug thing, when sure. when uh, when Melanotan one and two first came out with those um, uh, skin cancer trials in the late. Yeah. Uh, early, early and middle nineties in Australia, the same thing. They, I mean, they had just wild, wild protuberations in the response until they oh. honed it down. So I think eventually you're going to see drugs like leptin and relin and these things. I think they're going to be for real. Um, it's yeah. just not yet. <laughs> just not yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always thought you know leptin. If it was it was always because again I came from you know sort of the natural. Uh, side of it, and you, you know, you look at what happens to natural bodybuilders at four percent body fat, and basically everything goes wrong. <laughs> Testosterone, castrate, thyroid is in the is in the toilet. IGF one is down. GH is actually usually up, but that's the mobilized fat. Cortisol is right. through the roof, like it is. You know, leptin is undetectable below ten percent body fat. Like everything, just the whole system goes completely fucked, and. What bodybuilders did through trial and error, through by hook and by crook, is they were just replacing all of that piece by piece. They were replacing all the individual bits. Appetite suppressants, cortisol blockers, steroids, clen, thyroid, you know, all this stuff kind of came in to fix all the problems. But leptin was always controlling it 
kind of at, at the central pathway, which is why I'm like, yeah, you know, talk about a drug that would – actually, you want to talk about a drug that would cure obesity – not cure obesity, but would fix the problems people have with dieting. This is where leptin research always went way wrong. They wanted a drug that caused weight loss. Leptin didn't really do that. What Lesson did was eliminated the adapt- adaptations to dieting in terms of hunger and metabolic rate. And, yep. and the, the problem being it was 500 bucks a day uh, and had to be injected twice a day. And realistically, I mean, shit, diabetics won't even uh, do, you know, do what they need to do because it's such a pain in the ass to take that many shots. But, you know, come, to fix that, you know, they looked at, what, inhalable Lesson for a while. Oh, they looked at inhalable insulin at one point. You had mentioned you had mentioned cortisol blockers. It's funny you say that because I've seen in the quote Prill Ranch, you know, the little secret, you know, notes are passed in class. Um uh-huh. amino glutathione is making a comeback right. as a pre as a pre contest yeah. drug. Yeah, yeah. Wanna wanna talk about something that makes you feel like shit. Oh my god. Yeah, and I remember when that first hit and looked really promising, and then it didn't seem like anyone could really make it work. Because, again, cortisol is one of those things that, unfortunately, we think of hormones as good or bad. Testosterone, good. Estrogen, bad. Cortisol, bad. Thyroid, good. It's like, well, no. Um, And it's like, yes, excess cortisol, certainly bad. But without cortisol, no inflammatory response. Your joints hurt. Everything you just feel like shit, like you know, people again forget just drugs prefer Cushing's severe, massive overproduction of drugs. You need or of cortisol, you need some. The question was, could you control it well enough? And I don't know if that ever really. I I personally had experimented with. I had personally experimented with it. It got to the point where just walking made the soles of my feet hurt like I was a thousand years old. It was horrible. Oh, it was horrible. and it improved your physique, eh, 5%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and yeah. certainly that was purely going to be an ancillary thing. Um, yeah, it was, it was then, funny. It just, you mentioned it, it just made me think of that. It's just funny. Uh, but, yeah, so anyway, we, we got way off topic as usual, but I think ancillary, you know, always, uh, all that stuff. I mean, I remember for a while, Glenn was, ah, Dan was suggesting, ah, use Glenn in the off-season to stay leaner so you don't have to <laughs> diet as long to avoid muscle loss. And it's like, this is kind of ass-backwards. Um, you know, even there, I know I've read, you know, again, chasing the negatives. People, he, he once wrote that the pros were using, what was it, 200 micrograms of T3 a day so they wouldn't get fat off the insulin. And it's like, well, yeah. We're kind of chasing down one problem with it. Then again, he recommended insulin and DNP as a... a DNP, absolutely. Okay. And, you know, and there, there's an interesting compound to discuss for another day uh, because there's so much, you know. It, it's so funny where guys are like, uh, yep, I'm taking a gram of Trent a week and 18 other drugs, but, man, DNP, I wouldn't touch that. I'm like, I think you've kind of missed the four, you know, uh, kind of missed yeah. the concept here. It's, am- it's amazing what will be decided as unhealthy in the face of right. other drugs being used. Pe- um, people draw the line at the strangest place. Yeah, exactly. The argument I always talk about that is like the, the person that sees you use the public restroom and not wash your hands are like, oh my God, are you are you serious? And then they go home and they lick someone's asshole. And I'm like, I oh, want to... 
a girl I'm not sure I knew. That, I'm not sure I'm feeling that. <laughs> I, I knew a girl once who was did a lot of cocaine, drank and smoked a lot, and once told me, you know, I don't think those protein bars are good for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. You know, you, like, I just from from a hygiene level, I'm like, really? You know, you're willing to put your tongue somewhere like that, but you know, I touch my dick and go wash my hands, and things things well, are off the table. But hey, I don't I, find I think it, they're commensurate. I, uh, someone I know has known, you know, you get into the recreational drug world, which has its correlate areas with bodybuilding in terms of how people oh draw the one. And they, they told me they knew, they knew people that they're like, yeah, you know, I do heroin, but I only smoke it. It's like they still think of themselves, it's like, well, I'm not one of those dirty injection people. I only smoke yeah. my heroin. And it's just like right. there's such weird lines drawn, and the line is always drawn just to the right of what you're doing. What right, I'm doing exactly. is fine. But any step beyond that, you're fucked. You're fucked up. It's really shy. It's amazing. I agree. Oh, all right. Are we, are we done for the day? Have we I, covered I enough? Think, yeah, I think we're done unless people want to just hear us, like, talk at the bar for another hour, which would be fun, but not the point and, of and the we podcast. Certainly can, I, and sure. we certainly can do that. <laughs> but I, I, think, I think this... You know, I hope hopefully people got something out of this in terms of some practical stack design, the futility of PCT for the most part. Um, you know, hopefully absolutely got some some and, uh, stuff out of this. Yeah, and like like we said through through this conversation, probably come back some point sure. and tackle both the 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 grand world of ancillary drugs, or at least yeah. non. Non-sex hormone anabolics, maybe. Right, right, right. And okay. uh, also, you know, maybe one day, you know, probably uh, not not commercially inappropriately strategized with your forthcoming yeah. book on female athletics. Yeah, um, maybe, yeah. maybe, uh, maybe tackle the idea of you know anabolic use for women, uh, sure. which is just a monster of a subject, but it's something we could at least broach. Uh, sure. And I think it, I can think of no one better, you know, more more appropriate to do that with yeah. than than you. So, to your point, you know, realistically, there is no good way to do it. There is only a exactly. relatively safer and less safe way of doing it. You know, women are going to do it. That's about the size of it. Um, yeah. All right. Sounds good. That, that's about the size so of it. Let me finish up, Broderick. Uh, as last time, I want to thank you for appearing on your own podcast. Uh, I, I think your I think your listeners will be uh, very happy about it. So if they want to follow up, where can they find you online? Um, I'd love great ways to consolidate all of my everything in the digital world to Team Evil GSC. So if you right. simply use Team Evil GSC on Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff, uh, including my website, they're all the same nomenclature. So Team Evil GSP, I'm out there. Any of them will lead you back to me. Sounds good. All right, sir. Well, we will talk to you next time, and uh, I guess I'll see you then. Excellent. Thank, and let me thank you for uh, just being one of the few people willing to talk about this stuff and one of the few people with enough scientific acumen to talk sensibly about this stuff. So thank you for being Ronald McDonald, okay? Thank you, sir. All right. We will talk to you next time. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.
Bye.